You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi guys, my name is Brandon and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption City Church and you're just moments away from hearing one of our sermon exhortations and we're super pumped for you to be able to do that. Now, I don't know about you, but there's times where I've went to church and I get frustrated because I can't remember everything the pastor just said. Maybe I'm at a restaurant or I go home and a spouse or a friend says, hey, what did you learn today? And you get frustrated because you can't remember everything. But here's the thing. I believe we all can remember one big idea that really hit us in the head or in the heart. Now, now watch this. There are 52 Sundays in a year, 52 of them. What if you just remembered one big truth from every one of those weeks? That would be 52 learnings. That's incredible. Imagine if you took those 52 learnings and you took them so seriously and you apply them to your life. Where would you be in one year's time? Now imagine two years, three years, four years. You start to have 400 learnings from the Bible. Are you kidding me? And all of a sudden, we start to think about things like you're a mature, deepening, Christ-centered man or woman. So no matter whether you can remember all 18 points that the pastor made or you walked away with one big idea that rocked your soul and you said, I'm going to go activate that in my life. Be encouraged. You can do it and have an amazing time with God in our sermon today. Grace and peace. Important topic, not afraid, so critical. I'll explain if you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do. Let's open it to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to be all up in this text in just a little bit. And, and today, I want to establish our aim moving forward throughout the remainder of our redemptive Christianity series. Okay, so, okay, so here it is. For the rest of your life, and it goes for my life too, always know that there are two groups of people following following Jesus according to what our Bibles show us, because there, there's a very large group of people referred to as the crowd, and there's a significantly smaller group of people referred to as the called. And, and folks, the biggest difference between these two groups of, of people is that the called, I mean, excuse me, the crowd came to Jesus and they, and they sought him because they wanted to get what they wanted to receive from Jesus, like whether that was healing from stuff or deliverance from 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 stuff or opportunity for stuff or to simply gain more stuff, Jesus was a means towards getting more stuff and desirable things. And and differently though, folks, the the called group of people were primarily drawn to Jesus himself, right? We've been learning about that. And and it it wasn't primarily what Jesus could do for them. Jesus was the gift for them, folks, in and of himself, and, and therefore, this series is all about redeeming Christianity, meaning to, to rediscover or to reclaim Christianity in, in such a way that it moves us into a relationship with Jesus that is radically present and, and deeply true and, and vastly, vastly satisfying, right? It's about moving our relationship from an, an informational one that you just kind of read about to a spirit-filled relational one. It's about moving away from 
spiritual foundations that are largely built upon Christian traditions and maybe even perhaps how you were raised up in your family and, and now walking towards new foundations in Jesus and the word that are actually based upon his word. Listen, this series is all about living and enjoying and understanding the life of the called as you learn to practice being in the presence of God in a way that actually, folks, that actually saves. Now, now, last week in part one, excuse me, not last week, but last time in, in part one of our Redemptive Christianity series, it was titled, Discovering Our Redemptive Lenses. And we learned that you cannot do life for Jesus without doing life with Jesus, right? We talked about that in, in a major way. We learned that the moral lens creates hurdles and obstacles for people that are far from God, and, and it keeps them from entering into the kingdom of God. But, but instead, the redemptive lenses that we actually see in Scripture, based upon what God has laid out, folks, it sees the radical, beautiful opportunity to invite everyone and I mean everyone into the kingdom, irrespective of their starting point or pain points of life. We talked about that. We learned that if you're living consciously or even subconsciously by these moral lens and they're, and they're driving you, you're not going to get where you want to be and you're not going to really be happy. You're not going to have that Christian passion and excitement because you're going to feel drained all the time and you're going to lack massive vibrancy. In Christ, we learn that when Christ actually shows up on the scene and comes into your heart, everything, folks, is supposed to turn upside down. Because all of a sudden, people, primarily broken people and, and uncomfortable situations, have room to actually step into your life and right into the middle of your family dynamics, folks. Because Jesus and his agendas become yours. And you come with Jesus, with his prerogatives. We learn that before morality can be considered, and I mean it, and doing good deeds can occur, and, and we have to avoid that, establishing better practices uh, um, with Jesus need to be prioritized. We need to have a genuine reconciliation, folks, with God through Jesus before we go about doing all of Jesus' things. The, we learned that the primary compulsion that was actually driving Paul forward in the text of 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5 was to walk with Jesus and to be in his presence because of the overwhelming love that he experienced first from Jesus and being radically saved despite all that he did. And out of that, he was compelled or he was driven forward and pressed around by Jesus' love to go forward and to do all he did. It, it wasn't his shame and it wasn't his sin and it wasn't his past mistakes. None of it. It wasn't to receive Jesus' stuff. It was to be an ambassador for Jesus in light of all of who Jesus meant to him. Therefore, we learn that actually being with Jesus leads for leads to us being able to pick up his agendas and to pick up his priorities in a way that becomes our baseline and our joy. And we do it, folks, without being burdened. And, and that brings us to today, part two of our RCS series titled The Role of Scriptures. And today we're going to be having segment A of that conversation, and it's the, all about the canonicity of the Bible and trusting God's revelation of himself. And, and today we're going to be engaging in a super important conversation that haunts folks so many Christians deep deep 
within our hearts, and, and yet for some reason, it's often swept under the rug, and, and many churches don't really talk about it anymore today. And, and folks, this conversation is about how our Bible actually came to be, and, and ultimately learning to trust our Bible without fear, without doubt, that God has sufficiently revealed himself through the Bible, and that everything, and I mean everything, that we need to be in relationship with him is there. Folks, that's what it means. Um, That's what the sufficiency of scripture means. But folks, it's going to run deeper than that today. And I I promise, because in order for you and I to to turn back or, or to walk towards a Christianity that can actually save, we will have to see that God has revealed himself through his book. We call it the Bible without material error as well. Now, now I want to talk about this word real quick about material error. It, it's a law term. It's also a science term that's often used to describe um, something that doesn't have a fatal flaw to it. Okay, so, so a material error, according to the Heritage Dictionary, is any reported or verifiable finding of a product that hinders its performance in a meaningful way. Are you are you tracking with me about that? Okay, so so that's what the inerrancy or we can call it the infallibility of scripture means, okay? And and I don't know what you've what you've learned in your church tradition or or in your church background about this idea of inerrancy or or infallibility um, and I don't know if that's a stumbling block for you, but but the inerrancy of scripture or or the infallibility the infallibility of scripture isn't saying that the Bible couldn't have some some adjectives and, and adverbs and, and even phrases that kind of get mixed up or, or there couldn't be a, that kind of a discrepancy. What it's saying, folks, is that the Bible is without any genuine material error, meaning that, meaning that the Bible is without any reported or verifiable failure of its product. What's the product? The product being the word of God uninterrupted that hinders. Are you tracking with me? There, there's no verifiable finding that hinders the Bible's performance in any meaningful way that hinders what God is working out in his redemptive plans. Okay, and so for us as Christians, we have to believe that fully, folks, that that there's nothing lacking in our Bible that stops God from moving in any meaningful way towards his redemptive plans. Because the sufficiency of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture or the infallibility of Scripture and how the Bible comes together, folks, it matters. And it matters in a big way. And today, we're going to focus more on how the books of the Bible actually come together with the Bible sufficiency as our backdrop. Now, now maybe one day, we'll do a deeper dive into inerrancy and infallibility, and we can camp out on this whole material error thing. But for the purpose of the church and raising up committed disciples here and across multiple state lines that are tracking with us through this series, we're going to focus today on how the books of the Bible and how they come together. That's a big deal, because everything, and I mean everything we're going to talk about today, and and everything you're going to learn for the rest of your life is going to be based upon this text between Genesis and Revelation. So this is kind of a big deal. Are, Are you with me? Okay, so all of this can be a very charged conversation for many people. 
let's let's just be honest. In fact, it's a church dividing, friendship complicating, uh, uh, trust robbing, um, offense perpetuating, uncomfortability creating, heart closing situation for far too many of us. Can I just can I get a witness? But folks, it shouldn't be that way, and it, and it can't stay that way anymore. We can't be like there. Listen, there should never be a conversation that involves our God and his people that can't be discussed openly with great circumspection and with spirit-filled love in the middle. Instead, it should be done with Jesus. And we're going to do it with patience as our backdrop. And, and think about this with me for a second. How on earth can you have a stable relationship with God on unstable soil? I'm going to say to you again, how on God's great earth can you have a stable relationship with him if it's built upon unstable soil and you don't have a foundation that you have firm belief upon? And, and, and how long do you actually want to continue living with the secret chambers of your heart that remain unanswered and, and, and closed off from discussion, filled and ravaged with, with doubt about what you believe in the Bible due to, due to past fears? Due to, due to past experiences, because you went to some church one day and, and they were kind of rude to you when you when you asked a question about your faith or about the Bible and you weren't sure and they kind of beat you up and are you gonna stay that way forever, brother or sister? Like, like no way. We want to step into the light, we want to step into discussion, and we want to be confident disciples of Christ. Okay, because hear me clearly, those unsettled places of your heart are indirectly. And for some of you are directly affecting your ability to burst wide open with that Christian excitement and that Christian passion that God has directly set before you. You can't be driven by the love of God if you can't believe in what the love of God is because you got a holes, folks, in your confidence in this Bible. Because, listen, you can't fully trust God if you have unsettled aspects of your heart about his book. <laughs> you, you got a Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Work out your faith, brothers and sisters, with fearful trembling. You can't fully trust God if you don't step deep into some of these old church wounds of old that you've gotten or these holes of doubt that plague you. So today, we're not going to be lazy and we're not going to be afraid and we're not going to be unassuming. No, we're going to lean into the reality of God's word today in a safe and productive manner. And, and that doesn't mean that every single question that you have today is going to be answered. That, that's not realistic, but it does mean that here at RCC, we don't run away from conversations and topics at all right? Like we talked about biblical manhood and womanhood in the DNA series, and, and we went for it, and, and we, we laid out what God says in Scripture. And we talked about God's design for sex and marriage and relationships in light of eternity in the Ephesians series that God lays out in Scripture. We just deal with the text here at Redemption City Church. And, and I've claimed that throughout this Redemptive Christianity series, we will talk faithfully more about life and, and marriage. But, but now I said we're going to talk about 
about things like Sabbath and redeeming our fasting and redeeming our generosity and redeeming repentance and all these foundations, like how can we step into a redemptive role in these massive constructions of the Christian faith that God is laying out in Scripture, right? So, so we can't run away from today's topic. Okay, so, well, in order for us to do that, we're going to have to approach this conversation utterly different than many of you have approached it before. Like if we actually want <laughs> to have redemptive Christianity running through our veins and coursing through our hearts, we're, we're going to need a distinctively ushered Holy Spirit help us type of an encounter into the presence of God. If we really want to experience that withness with Jesus that the Bible offers us, folks. We can't run away anymore. Listen, as your pastor, I'm saying that this is a great conversation for us to lay some pri preliminary bricks upon for this series. I'm not saying it's the most important brick we need to lay down, but it's an incredibly faithful place for us to start because these are the deeper layers that I want to lovingly and gently yet courageously invite us all into now now today's not going to be a seminary seminary class at all okay like like we are not about to talk about these conversations for the sake of intellectual assent and and biblical knowledge that's not what we're going to do today but rather i'm going to do my very best in christ to actually model to everyone today what it looks like for the church to discuss the bible's construction in a way that both glorifies god helps us grow and sends us out more confident as believers. And, and also, I want to do it in a way that honors the spirit of how I think, to my best ability, the apostles of old, namely the apostles that we see in Acts, how they might teach if they were living today with the privileged position of having the entire Bible that that we have. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, and, and, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to do this, uh, for, both for some of the, the long-term Christians that don't even know that they need this conversation in a real way, and, and for some of the other long-term Christians that don't know how critically important this conversation is for their 21st century evangelism to those who are actually lost in the dark and unbelievers and are going to be curious about these type of topics. But folks, I'm also... Just equally encourage for the wanderer and the seeker that's sitting before us today who clearly have questions that the church often either doesn't want to answer or can't answer in a helpful way. Like both sides of the equation, I, I just want to start with this foundational logical flow of a no-fluff idea to kind of build this sermon upon today. Are you ready? It's, it's going to be on your screen. Here it is. If you believe there is a God, and if you believe he can control anything and everything, and if you believe he desires to reveal himself okay, to us for the sake of relationship, would he not control the one thing that depicts the right stuff being shared about him in his own book? 
I mean, just, just think about it, because this is an important question you need to answer today. So, so, so many of us get stuck on, is there human error? Is there human involvement in the wrong way? When we think about the, suffi the sufficiency or the inerrancy or the infallibility of Scripture, and, and we disproportionately focus <clears throat> on that instead of asking the, the better question about God's involvement in the process, and what power and authority does he have or does he not have? I'm going to say it again. We disproportionately focus on, can there be a human error? Is there human error? But we, we don't lift up the, the more important question is, what do you believe about God's authority and his presence actively working in the redemptive history? And do you believe he has the power or not to present himself correctly to you and I. Because if God actually exists and he's as powerful and has the type of ultimate authority that you claim you believe he has, the one thing he's going to get right is the book about himself that all life is based upon. Are you tracking with me? So, so this is a foundational idea that I want you to be holding in tension throughout the entire conversation today. Are you with me? So, so let's open our Bibles to, to the book of Proverbs. Why are we in the book of Proverbs? I know, I got you. We're going to go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 13, and then we're going to juxtapose it right next to James, chapter 3, verse 17, because both of these passages are, won't be a verse-by-verse -verse kind of exhortation today. That's, that's not possible, but instead both of these verses will serve as our foundational prayer and it's going to serve as our foundational hope for this sermon today. Are you ready? Let's, let's do that now. Here it is, the, the book of Proverbs chapter 3 verse 13 through 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Oh man, I don't know about you, but I want to be blessed and I want to find wisdom. And, and the one who gets understanding. We want to understand our God. We want to understand ourselves, right? Okay, so, so verse 14, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious. The she being referred to as wisdom. Wisdom is more precious than jewels and, and nothing you desire can compare to her. Nothing you desire compares to wisdom. Verse 16, long life is in wisdom's right hand, and, and wisdom uh, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Wow, wisdom's important. Verse 17, her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Do you want peace? Do you want pleasantry, Christian? Okay, verse 18, she, remember we're talking about wisdom, Wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold fast are called blessed. Oh man, that's good. Wisdom must be really legit. It's super important for our lives. Now, here it is, James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom, okay, now we're in the New Testament. James helping us up. It's a little easier than the Old Testament if we're not calling wisdom a her. Okay, so here we go. But the wisdom from above is first pure. That's going to be important today. We have to have pure intentions. Then peaceable. Do you know what then means? It means there's an order going on here. You got to study the text. Okay, so wisdom is, is, is first, it's, it's pure in its intentions, and then, and then it, it's peaceable, it's, it's gentle, open to reason. Are you going to be open to reason today? Or are you going to be closed off and haughty the whole time? It's full of mercy and good fruits, and it's impartial. 
It's impartial. It doesn't say, I want to believe what I want to believe, or I got a wound, or my family taught. It's impartial, and it's sincere. But wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. All of these things happen after it being pure. Oh, man. Let's pray, RCC, that as our, as our backdrop. Heavenly Father, God, I just confess that we need you and, and that we need your grace and, and we need your help today because we want wisdom that is pure and, and we want to have a conversation that's, that's peaceable. Father, help us to be open to reason and impartial and, and, and sincere in our approach today. And so we declare that we search for wisdom here because we believe it will give us indeed the tree of life in our hearts. So, Father God, so, so settle some hearts today that need deep settling in this conversation because some people are awkwardly stuck here subconsciously. Therefore, we declare that you are greater than we are. We are creatures and you are the creator. We are flesh and you are spirit. We are temporal and you are eternal. Thank you, Jesus, that you're eternal and you give us an opportunity to step into that equation we we give you the glory and declare that we are not your equal you reveal yourself perfectly and we need to respond better distinctly better to that and and i personally pray and ask for your help and for you, for you to bless my teaching god as i teach concepts that i know are deeply in your heart that your design and it's because of your beautiful name that i attempt to engage in this conversation today amen okay okay so so here we go let me tell you i i, I was online googling in a real way to prepare for this very different sermon and and i'm going to be honest with you i was attempting to find strange laws that exist from around the world and even strange laws that exist right here in the United States. So so let me unpack a few of these really strange laws that I was able to discover right now, and I think you might find them quite fascinating and some of them quite ridiculous. Okay, so here we go. You ready? In Florida, it is illegal to parachute on a Sunday if you are an unmarried woman. <laughs> like what? Are you serious? Uh, folks, and what's so peculiar and just weird to me is how precise that law is, right? Like, like it, you can parachute, uh, you can parachute in Florida, and you can parachute as an unmarried woman, but you just can't do that on Sunday. Uh, okay, here, here's another one. I'm not joking. In Vermont, a wife needs her husband's permission to wear false teeth. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, like that's something that probably all husbands in the country will 100% grant permission towards indefinitely, right, fellas? Like, like us men, we want you to have your teeth, ladies, and we mean it. Okay, here's another one. In England, it is literally illegal to die in the House of Parliament. You can't die there. You just can't. Okay, okay. So if you're in England and, and you start having a really bad cough or, or you look pale in the face, they will take you out of Parliament. Otherwise, you might run the risk of breaking the law. 
after you die. Like you would be dead and then you would be breaking the law. Like that, that's just weird. And, and, and by the way, folks, all these laws that I'm talking about are still in the books today. Like some of them obviously are not enforced anymore, but they are most definitely active laws that are still on the books. Okay, here's, here's another one. Uh, and in Alabama, and, and this sounds like there's a story behind it, okay? So in Alabama, it is illegal for men, not women, but, but, but for men to wrestle bears. Doesn't that sound super Alabama-ish to you? Like men wrestling bears? What are you, what are you doing? Okay, here, here's another one. In China, it is illegal for Buddhist monks to reincarnate without getting the government's permission. I, I, so, so, so if you're so, so if that's you, like you better fill out that paperwork before you pass away, right? Because it's illegal, and you would be breaking, you'd be breaking the law. Okay, now look at me. There are obviously tons of laws in the world, right? And there's tons of laws even between different states, right here in the U.S. So, so answer this for me. Which laws and, and which standards are, are you bound by and, and I'm bound by and we're bound by? Because you and I surely aren't bound by all laws that exist, right? Like, I don't think so. Like, like you and I are, are bound by the laws of the U.S., right? And then specifically, you and I, most of us who live here in Oregon, we're bound by those laws. If you're watching in a different state, you're, bound, you're also bound by that state's laws, right? Okay, so, so if a police officer, like, pulls me, uh, me or you over and, and then we say to him, excuse me, officer, why? Why did you pull me over? And, and the officer proceeds to respond by saying, well, well, I thought you guys were about to reincarnate without the government's permission, and that's a federal offense. Like, like, like if he told you that or me that, we would think that this police officer is absolutely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, wouldn't we? Because that's not a law that applies to you and me, and we are not bound by that law, and we're not bound by that standard here are we? And, and if a different officer pulled you over or me over and challenged that he was concerned that we might be heading to wrestle bears, like you'd think he's crazy uh, and cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs too, because the entire category of, of wrestling a bear would be foreign to me and you. We'd be like, why would we ever want to wrestle a bear? And, and folks, that's because those laws are not your laws. They're someone else's laws. Okay, so today we're going to explore God's laws, and we're going to explore what God's standards are, not someone else's. Are you tracking? God's laws, God's standards, not someone else's. So, so that means we're going to explore the standard of what becomes God's word, and we're going to explore, explore what laws are we bound by as the people of God. So, so if you have your Bible, and, and I really hope you do, I, I want you to open it to the book of, of Jubilees, please. Book of Jubilees. Can, can you turn there to the, to the book of Jubilees? Come, no one? No one? No one? No one can do that? Okay, okay. I'm, 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 it's cool. I'm flexible. Uh, let's just start unpacking today's sermon by turning to the Gospel of Mary, chapter 3, verse 15. You got to turn, Gospel of Mary, chapter 3, verse 15. Can, can, can you turn there? Like, no, nobody's, okay. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? It goes uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mary. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mary. No, jeez, no one? No one wants to participate? Oh, okay, okay, fine, fine. Let's just all turn to 4Q MMT of the Dead Sea Scrolls, please. Can you turn to the Dead Sea Scrolls? Or or, or perhaps the Assumptions of Moses? Can, can we turn there? Nobody, nobody? Okay, now, now, now you do realize that the Bible is not just one book, right? 
That, it's actually a collection of 66 books. That's what the Bible is. It's a collection of 66 books that are, are simply bound together. Okay, so, so, so why is our Bible filled with these 66 books and not 66 other books? You ever thought about that? And, and why not just add a 67th book, especially if it's a really good one? Or, or why don't we just delete a few and make it an even 60? Like, why does it have to be 66? Man, these are really good questions, right? But you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to ask that at church at all, right? Instead, you're supposed to just keep your lips tight and be a good little Christian boy or girl and just believe everything and never explore anything at all, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. Folks, I'm committed here as your lead pastor to always teach and preach in a way that helps you to become what? A confident student learner, a strong Christian, and more importantly, helpful to Christ and his mission here on this planet. So, so today, let's do a brief snapshot of what books belong in Scripture so we can set ourselves up for the next sermon in reading in the presence of Jesus. Because we can't do that well if we don't first have this conversation today. Okay, so, so the books that are in the Bible that we call Scripture are known as the canon of Scripture. Everybody say, the canon of Scripture. Okay. Now, now don't think of the word cannon like what we used to use in the Civil War that shot out that shot out those big rocks. Not like that. Instead, think of the Greek word kanum. Okay. So it comes from the Greek word kanum, which means the standard or the criterion or the measuring stick, like the measuring stick by which something is judged. Okay. So it's it's kanum. Okay. So when we talk about the kanum of Scripture or the canon of Scripture, this is what. We mean it's going to be on your screen. This is the canon of scripture explained the best way I can to help you in a simple yet pastoral, profound way. Here it is. The canon of scripture is the standard or criterion or measuring stick that God uses to judge and explain who he is. God makes the standard, not us. Okay. So, so it's to judge and explain who he is and what he's about, and what he wants. And in response to that, as a byproduct, the canon of Scripture depicts who we are, what we are about, and what we should pursue. But the key word is byproduct. God is revealing himself, and then we are illuminated because of God into who we are. Okay, now, here's the reality. This is an absolute new category for many people probably listening today. So, so my hope is just to kind of, uh, my hope for you is that you would just kind of bear with me through this conversation because some of this is today is going to get a bit heady. Just remember, our goal moving forward is to become more confident student learners, more confident Christians, not more complete intellectuals of the Bible. Listen, there's a fine balance, folks, between having faith in God and trusting God with actual biblical literacy and genuine competency that actually has power to push and move and drive you forward against the darkness and against the false claims about God and his word. You want that. I want that. We need that. But that's different versus the categorically ignorant and unassuming and uninterested person that doesn't care enough about God's story and how he came to be known to us, and we don't want to live like that. 
We don't want to not care insofar as like, I don't really care if I'm going to read my Bible. That's not helpful. But, but we want to also learn these things in a way that says it's a tool to help us be more powerful as ambassadors of Christ. Because if I say that I love my wife, yet I don't know her story or where she came from or how she came to be, and if I show little interest in her past and I only prioritize what my present of what I see right in front of her, and if I don't even care enough to inquire about what she felt was important to her and her backstory and, and, and what helped to shape her to be who she is, and if I don't pursue the details of why she came to be who she she is as Jillian, uh, Jillian Rochelle, would you say I'm loving my wife well? Like, like no way, right? Okay, so today is about that, folks, namely loving our God and caring enough about him to want to know his story and caring also enough to want to know how he chose to reveal his story in what we call the Bible. And, and my overall hope is that you will be able to trust the Bible more. That's the hope, and don't dare, don't you dare forget it, not to learn more stuff. No, the hope today is that you would trust the Bible more, because you need to trust the Bible for next uh, the next sermon's conversation. That's that's critical because every once in a while, come on, be honest, we all have those moments where we're sitting at home and we're watching the Discovery Channel or we're watching the History Channel or the National Geographic Channel and all of a sudden you'll see an episode come on and it'll talk about how we found a new gospel or or the how there's a new evidence that the Bible's corrupt or, or there's new information about the true story of Noah's Ark. And my hope is that today would help to begin to equip you for those moments, folks, that you experience on TV, or for those moments when you're at college, or you're in your universities, or for the kids that are listening today, when you start to get away from mommy and daddy in the church, and, and then your school is teaching you about things, whether it's about um, sex and gender, or about religion. Hey, Tetrakis, 10 and 12 year old, I want you to lean in today. You don't have to be scared anymore when you go to 7th and 8th grade and 9th grade and you hear things that challenge your, your faith. But you do need to understand, okay? You need to understand so you can be a confident Christian. So, so we're going to start today with what we call the Bible. And then we're going to move into a discussion about how some books, uh, about what books absolutely don't belong in the Bible. So both, what books belong in the Bible and then what books don't belong in the Bible. Okay, so let's talk about the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one of the things you need to know about God is that he gives his word progressively over time. Okay, repeat after me. God gives his word progressively over time. That's that's really important. And what this means is God gives his word in seasons for reasons. Like like God isn't going over to Adam and Eve and giving them instructions about baptism. We don't see that in the text, right? Like it wouldn't have made any sense to Adam and Eve because the fall hadn't happened yet. And baptism, folks, it's not needed. That, th th that's how this works. And, and God's not going to come up to Adam and say, Hey, Adam, this is how you appoint deacons in the church. Because, because if God would have said that, Adam would have been like, uh, Hey, God, uh, 
What's a deacon? I haven't seen or, or ever named an animal a deacon. Uh, is a deacon a fish of the sea? Like, like, Adam would have been confused, right? Because it wasn't time yet. It, it wasn't needed. Uh, okay, so, so what happens is God gives his word and reveals himself over time throughout redemptive history. And sometimes, folks, he does it through speaking a word audibly. He spoke audibly. He has a voice. It could be heard. And in other times, through the Ten Commandments, which literally was God pinning it, like God actually wrote something himself in those Ten Commandments. And yet other times, it's it's God giving his word to authoritative prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and guys like that who came on the scene. And yet sometimes he even gave it to, excuse me, he even gave it to authoritative leaders, not prophets, but authoritative leaders like David in the Psalms or, or Solomon, Solomon in the wisdom literature or, or to Moses in some of the first books of the Bible. And so God reveals himself to his people over time. And it's obvious and it's known when he does it uh, during that time. And and it's clear. And folks, it's not just some simple thing where, where a guy says he's a prophet and then makes a bunch of stuff up. That's not how we got our Old Testament. We're talking about an era and a season and a time period in the Old Testament specifically where if that guy um, is even slightly off in what he's presenting to be from God, he gets killed either by men or by God himself. Like God was radically focused on perfecting his word that came out to his people. So, so God reveals himself over time, and he reveals himself over time, and he keeps revealing himself over time. And the Old Testament canum or, or canon, name, it, namely the Bible that Jesus would have been speaking from, and the apostles would have had too, that Old Testament canon is seen by the Jews, folks, as complete and closed around 435 BC. Pay attention. Around 435 BC, the Old Testament that we see in our Bible, that, that Old Testament that's, that, that goes from Genesis to, to Malachi became a closed conversation. It was done, according to the Jews. Their Bible was complete. That's the Bible. And then comes a period of silence, okay? so uh, There's a period of silence. And, and so the Jews at this time are acknowledging fully that Genesis, we know that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all that. Genesis through Malachi, as we know our Bibles, is God's word. They're like, yep, this is God. This is God's word. And it's the only word of God to be, to be discussed as divine. That's going to be important. And, and you even see elements of this with Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. Then he, uh, namely Jesus, I put that there to help you out. Then, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now you see in the red it says being their Bible. So that's that's a way um, often, um, a common way that Jewish people would refer to the Bible. So if you kind of say like the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that kind of means like the Bible, okay? So, um, so like even Jesus is recognizing that the Old Testament scripture is real. He's validating it's real it's thor and it's authoritative. Does, does that make sense? But folks, this actually runs 
deeper because it's not just the Jews that believe this. And I want you to know that today. In fact, if you didn't know, many of our major religions all affirm and all agree and lift up the authority of the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, there's tons of agreement there. I don't know if you know that, but like you start thinking about some of the major religions. They're all like, yep, that Old Testament, that's God, and that's God's word. There's, there's not much discrepancy there in most of our major religions. Okay, so, so let's keep tracking. So the Jews, right, the Jews, God's people, divided the Old Testament into three main categories. And, and I want to present those to you today so you can understand as we keep having this conversation. Okay, here. so here's the first one. So the first category or, or, or uh, way that they kind of like grouped it was the law of Moses. Okay, so first is the law, of Lose, the law of Moses, and it's also called the Torah. You ever heard of that? The Torah. And, and basically the Torah or the law of Moses stands for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay. <clears throat> now, the second category that the Jewish people broke the their their complete Bible, which is our Old Testament Bible, is by the prophets. Okay. And that's guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. And and honestly, it's even some historical books that deal with prophets like Elijah, which is called the Nanavim. Okay, so it's called the Nenavim. Okay, so then the third grouping, so you got the law of Moses, you got the prophets, and then the third grouping of how they break the Old Testament in is the writings or the Psalms and wisdom literature. And that's book like Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And they call that the Kethelbi. Okay, so it's called the Kethelbi in, in, in Judaism. Okay, the Kethelbi. Okay, look at me. Here's where things start to get tricky and sticky and a little bit icky. And it doesn't have much to do with the Old Testament. I, I want you to know that there's not all this controversy and struggle around the Old Testament, even with the major religions. But here's where it gets sticky, icky, and tricky. You see, Jesus comes out in the New Testament and declares that the Old Testament, that is a closed canon, that the Jews believe is God's divine and authoritative word, is actually about himself. Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, that, that book, that divine authority about God, it's about, it's about me. And he is literally talking about the entire Old Testament that the Jews then and today believe was closed. Like the interpretations also were closed in 435 BC. Okay, so what happens is God gives this word from, from Genesis to, to Malachi, and then there's silence, folks, in Israel regarding hearing from God. And, and the silence between Malachi, which is the last book of the Bible, and the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, it lasts about 400 years, folks. And, and we call that officially the intertestamental period of Scripture, which is just a fancy way that you never have to remember again after I said it as the time where God was silent. So all you need to know, for you know, intertestament, uh, all you need to know is between Malachi and Matthew, which is between that Old Testament and your Bible and the New Testament, God is silent. He doesn't speak. He doesn't. He does not communicate and give any more authority over anything or revelation of something new. And that's why, folks, track with me. It is so radical when John the Baptist burst onto the scene in New Test uh, in the New Testament, because John the Baptist isn't just some weird guy eating bugs and living in the wilderness and bucket pouring water on people. Okay, <laughs> that's not what's going on. 
I, I want the Bible to come to life for you. Track with me. The reason why John the Baptist is so unique and controversial and it's so massive in the cosmos is because finally, finally, after 400 years of the Jewish people, the people of Israel hearing not a thing, nada from God, a prophet is back on the scene representing God, praise Christ. And, and folks, for the first time in 400 years, we have someone from God speaking with God's authority again. It's a big, it's a big, a big deal. And, and, and John the Baptist, he's, he's proclaiming that the Messiah, the Savior in Christ is coming and he's coming quick to take away the sins of the world People of God, this is productive. It's a massive moment in our Christian history. Are you kidding me? It was epic, but, but it also wasn't just epic. It was a controversial time for the church, or what we call the church, but for the people of God at that time. Because to the Jews, folks, the Bible was finished. It was done. And now the early church comes on the scene in the book of Acts using the Old Testament Bible, the, the Old Testament as their complete Bible. That's what we had and that they had inherited from Judaism. But then something very weird starts to happen. Something very peculiar and strange and perplexing starts to happen. Because all of a sudden, you start to see the teachings of Jesus in the book of Acts and by extension, the teachings of the apostles being held up for the first time ever, as equal in authority to the Old Testament Scripture. Okay, so, so here's a few verses. Work with me. Here's a few verses of the Bible where you can see the intersection of that happening, where the Old Testament and the New Testament start to merge. I, I want to do this work for you, okay? So track with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. It is a beautiful merge. It starts to happen with the people of God of the Old and New Testament. Here, here it is. So Paul says, inspired by God, for the Scripture says... So, so that means, well, Paul says for the Bible says, okay? For the Bible says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the, the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, now you may be wondering, like, why is that so profound? Segment of scripture, like, I don't see the big collision of the Old and the New Testament. I, I got you. Uh, let, let me put it up again, and let me, let me make it illuminated for you right now. Here, here it is. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Folks, that's a direct quote from the Old Testament. Now let's keep reading. And the laborer deserves his wages. Guess what? This is a direct quote, folks, and it comes outside of Jewish scripture. It does not come from anywhere in the Old Testament. Are you seeing this now? The first part about not muzzling an ox is directly from the OT, the Old Testament, that, 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 the, the kanum that they call closed. But the laborer deserving his wages is not there. It's not there at all between, the, between Genesis and Malachi. But yet Paul just referred to it as scripture. He said, for the Bible says, do you, this, this, is, this, this is provocative. This is, this is serious to the Jewish people at that time. Now, do you know where the laborer deserves his wages actually comes from? Do you know what? Okay, it comes from the gospel tradition, folks, meaning it came from Jesus. And it's a direct quote from the gospel of Luke. 
that was circling around at that time. Are you kidding me? So Paul says, for the Bible says, and then he pulls something from the Old Testament, and he pulls from Luke's letter, and he calls it the Bible. Oh, man. So Paul's starting to pull from New Testament letters that are literally circling around the churches right now at the same time as they're studying the Kanam or the, the Old Testament Bible. But we don't just see this from only um, the Apostle Paul. No, we see this directly start happening with Jesus' disciples as well. Let's take a look at 2 Peter, which is one of Jesus' inner three, and, and, and he's literally a disciple that Jesus says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my whole church upon you. Uh, that's kind of a big deal. So let's let's hear from Peter right now, who's also inspired by God in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. It's, it's on your screen. So Peter says, and he, and he's referring to Paul to give you context, because this is a big passage. And and Paul does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Focus, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Oh, man, that's, that is a, a, really, a really big deal. Folks, this is where Peter is literally talking about how false teachers twist Paul's word because Paul can be super difficult to understand sometimes. So I don't know about you, but that's, a really, that's really good news for us if we ever get a little tripped up and trapped up and struggling in, in some of the epistles that Paul writes in Ephesians or Galatians because even Peter's saying, hey, Paul can be a little difficult to understand. Okay, but, but, but our man Paul is literally referring to Peter's letter, I mean, excuse me, Peter is literally referring to Paul's letter as graphe. Okay, so graphe means scripture. Okay, that's what it means in the Greek. Peter is literally putting Paul's teaching on the same level as scriptures that they already have. Did you see that in the text where he says, as they do the other scriptures? That's, that's provocative. Peter, Peter was saying that false teachers like to twist Scripture, whether it's the New Testament that's going to become be called the New Testament, Paul's writing, or the Old Testament. False teachers twist both, but he calls them both Scripture. And so we start to see the, uh, the teachings of the apostles who specifically knew Jesus as inspired and authoritative in God. Now, now focus. Have you ever wondered how the early church decided which books should be added to the Old Testament? How did the church do that? So, so once the church said, man, the, the, the canum is not closed. It's open. Have you, have, you ever, have you ever thought about how how we added books to the Old Testament? Because I think that's a very important subject for us to think about today. Okay, but, but just before we do, let, let me keep reminding you that we are not in seminary. This is Redemption City Church, and you are an active ambassador of God. So, so to be faithful, here's a very important discipleship-orientated foundational truth for us to build this conversation upon. Here it is. It's, uh, it's, it's on your screen. The church never and I mean never, has a right, to just, uh, a right to just declare something to be Scripture, ever. The church can only recognize what is already Scripture. Let me say it one more time. The church never has a right to just declare something to be Scripture, 
ever. The church can only recognize what is already Scripture. Okay, so let me unpack this just for a minute. Let's say I work for the government and they give me a large bag of money and they say, Hey, Brandon, in this money, there's going to be real money and there's going to be counterfeit money. And your job is to sort through all the money and, dis and to distinguish between what's real and what's counterfeit. Folks, now, I couldn't just take that bag of money, just randomly grab a bunch of money and put it in my hand and say, I hereby declare that this is real money and the rest is counterfeit, right? Like, like that would be weird, ineffective, and meaningless. Instead, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to lay out all the money and I'm going to see which dollars already bear the marks of being real and which, mark, and which dollars already bear the mark of of being counterfeit and false. Does that make sense? I, I know this is, keep track with me. Okay, so, so that's what the early church is doing when you think about them deciding that the New Testament was scripture. They're not literally deciding that the New Testament is inspired. They do, we do not have that authority. Folks, all the church did was simply discern which works were already inspired and were already bearing the marks of inspiration and authority. Okay, it's, it's getting deep now. Because I, I'm believing that some of you are tracking right now and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, Okay, Pastor Brennan, that, that makes sense. But, but what is the criteria then? And what's the rubric that, that the church was using to d differentiate between the two? Because I, I get the principle with money and you look for like the symbols and the stripe on the dollar. Like, so what's, so there's, there's stripes on the dollar. There's the, the, the little shiny little reflection thing on the dollar. Like, I get that. Like you look at the dollars and you're looking for what's, what's real, what's counterfeit. So, so what do we do that? How do we do that in the Bible? Like, what's the rule? What's the criteria? What's the rubric? Okay, that's, that, that, that's good. And so let's look at five key, not the only ones, but five key criterias um, that were used to consider if this letter or if this gospel was inspired by God. Here's, here's the first one. Number, here's one criteria. Does the work have apostolic tradition? Okay, does the work have apostolic tradition? Tradition. Okay, in other words, was this written by one of the 11 apostles of Jesus or someone who was close to one of those 11 apostles? And that's why you have Matthew and Mark who are actual disciples and apostles as authoritative authors that are accepted. But then you also, excuse me, like, uh, Ma yeah, and they, uh, like Matthew, but you also have Mark and Luke being accepted as authors even though they weren't direct apostles of Jesus. Are you talking? You see, Mark and, and, and Luke, they traveled and they lived and they taught directly with the disciples of Jesus. And, and that's how they are now considered authoritative. But, but it's deeper than that. Just keep track with me. And if you're wondering, well, why the apostles? Like, why the apostles? It's for a very simple reason. They knew Jesus the best. No one knew Jesus more than his 11 disciples. They literally walked with Jesus, folks, every single day for three years, and they saw him raised literally from the dead. Don't let that pass you by. We, we can't do Disney Channel Christianity anymore. 
If you watched me die right here on 185th Street and they hanged me on a cross and you watched my guts poured out and holes in my wrist and in, and in my ankles and they pierced my side and I'm gushing out and you bury me and you see me on this screen again, that's a big, a big deal. It's those guys, those guys who knew that Jesus, that's who we're talking about. They literally walked with that Jesus for three years. They saw him raised from the dead in total power and authority. And then there were those who were directly commissioned by Jesus to go to the end of the earth. Jesus gets up from the grave and says, you guys go to the ends of the earth and do this work now. That's why we, we, we accept them as authority figures. And guess what? Jesus even promises them and us directly in John 14, 26, what he's going to do for them. Let me show you. It's, it's on your screen. So Jesus says, but the helper, oh man, the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. Oh, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So, so right here, Jesus, the one who died and was buried and raised, that we all call king, he's saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to live in you, and he's going to teach you everything. And he's going to bring to remembrance everything that I taught you so that you can now teach others. Okay, so this is Jesus saying that even once he leaves, he's not going to abandon them and thereby, and therefore, he's not abandoning us. Instead, he's leaving them himself in the form of the Holy Spirit to guide them to make this New Testament, folks, possible. Okay, so, so let's keep tracking into the next criteria that the early church used to discern which scriptures already bore the mark of authority and inspiration. We got to deal with that concept today. The church didn't decide just like, oh, I decide I'm holy. I'm, I'm, I'm Pope Francis and I'm going to, no, they laid it out and said, oh man, this is God. This is God. So one was what, what the, does it have apostolic tradition? Here's, here's number two. Does the book in question agree with other books that are already accepted in the Bible? Folks, God is not schizophrenic. God is not bipolar. God does not go around giving his word over here and then contradicting it over there. He doesn't do that. Uh, and so one of the things that the early church looked for was continuity and synergy and fitness with the, the New Testament scripture and literature. And they juxtaposed it to what was already in scripture. That's faithful. And, and so they examine, uh, uh, rather, the doctrines in the New Testament lined up with what was seen in the Old Testament. Okay, so here's another criteria. Now, number three. Is the book in question historically accurate in what it says? Oh, man, this is good news. Okay, so, so if God does not lie, and we all agree, right, God doesn't lie, then you cannot have a book that's from God with all these historical and geographical and theological errors in them. Does that, does that make sense? Because he doesn't lie. So, so the early church looked for truth in the book's consistency regarding whether they could back this up historically and geographically. 
Does, does that make sense? And, and beyond that, they sometimes used about 10 other really faithful historical finding instruments um, and, and foundational things that are super faithful. They're not, they're not helpful for us to unpack, but there's 10 other ways they would test its historical value and its geographical value and its theological value. This stuff, this stuff is faithful. Here's, here's number four. It's, it's on your screen. Here's another criteria. Does the book in question have traditional use in the church? Okay, so so in other words, you can't just say, hey, hey, my name's Tommy, and I think that The Odysseys and Twilight and, and The Hunger Games was a really good novel, and I like it so much, so because it means a lot to me, it's scripture. Like, like that's that's not possible. Instead, the criteria is it has to already have a long and established use in the church. Because remember, by the time that the New Testament becomes canonized and becomes canum, it, there's a whole period of time where the letters were already circulating and working and oozing and reigning all in the churches. So, so this is a big criteria. Is the book in question having traditional use in the church on a regular basis. So whether it's like First Timothy or Philemon or or Jude, it's like these man these these letters they are catching weight. They are already in use regularly everywhere in all the churches. Okay, so so here's one more. And honestly, perhaps it's it's the most important criteria, at least to me, because I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you. Your pastor is is definitely more of a spiritual guy than an intellectual guy. So this criteria from the church really grounds me and it's and it's sobering for me and and it and it's really redemptive for me so so here it is here's here's number five does the book in question ring a note of truth in the believer's heart and have wide acceptance among the people of god pay attention Jesus says in the New Testament that his sheep hear and will know his voice, and to a stranger they will not follow. I'm going to say to you again, Jesus proclaims in the word of God that his sheep will know his voice, and to a stranger his sheep will not follow. And folks, there's something that occurs when you read in the presence of Jesus. We're going there next week. When you read in the presence of Jesus, there's something that happens in the believer's heart that causes you to rejoice. Oh man, truly, it's the best feeling ever when you hear the word, the actual authoritative inspired word of God, and you know it's from your heavenly Father, and, and here's what is so awesome. It's never just yourself that has that encounter. No, there's, there's, there's people, hundreds, thousands, millions of people hearing it and knowing it. Christians everywhere have the same reaction to the gospel or the word of God or the complete canum when it hits their heart universally. And, and that's exactly what would happen, folks. Something miraculous would occur. It's a miracle. Track with me. Because whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or a Sumerian, no matter where you came from, whether you were rich or poor, male or female, the word of God would go forth. And repeatable responses, can you repeatable responses of life change, contrition, repentance, healing, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, trajectory altercations, all of it would occur. 
Can you can you crazy? Different cultures would hear the same word and they would have the same response of healing moments, contrition moments, repentance moments. It's it's incredible. It's a miracle. Now, believe it or not, these are just a handful of the early criteria that the early church used to wrestle through which which books um, bear the mark and, and which books did not. There's there's even more. There, there's actually much more. And they're just as faithful and they're just as excellent in their construction and how they decipher scripture. It's just the truth. Now, now I know that's a lot of info. It's a lot of info. And, and this sermon is much different than what we normally do here in our sermon. So everybody just take a deep breath, okay? Just, just take a deep breath. Okay, now take another breath because we're about to get talking now even more deeply about which books do not belong in the Bible. Okay, so, so how are we going to do this? Okay, let's start the conversation off this way. Do you know which books don't belong in the Bible? Do you know? Like, which books don't belong there? Okay. Well, I'll tell you the easy version first. Namely, every single book that's ever been written on this planet that's not already in the Bible that you have in your, in your, in your, in your house, on your lap, or on your phone, every one of those books don't belong in the Bible. <laughs> that's the most simple way I can tell you, but, but we're here to go deeper, so, so let's go. And, and for time's sake, I, I'm not going to name every single book that's ever been written and tell you why it's not faithful and it doesn't bear the mark of inspiration to be in the Bible, because we would literally be here forever, and our church sermon would be the worst kind of seminary purgatory, and I don't want that for you. So instead, I've tried to make this as easy and simple and profound and productive by giving you categories of genres and types of books that don't belong in the Bible that are going to be massively relevant for your life as you deepen out as a disciple of Christ and you evangelize this world in postmodern Christianity. So, so as your pastor, okay, I'm going to walk us through right now the eight main genres of writing and literature and text that don't belong in the Bible. Does that sound good? So, so, so everyone, put your thinking caps on because we're about to jump in right now. Are you ready? Here we go. Here's, here's the first of these eight genres that don't belong in the Bible. Here it is on your screen. Pseudepigrapha. The pseudepigrapha does not belong in the Bible. Okay, so so the word pseudepigrapha, 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 I know, I know. So it, it means false graphe or, or false writing. So pseudo means false and graphe means writing. So pseudepigrapha, it's not scary. Pseudepigrapha means false writing. So the, so the pseudepigrapha is a broad term, folks, that uh, for any Jewish or any Christian writing that was not actually written by who it claims it was written by. I'm going to say to you again, pseudepigraphal writing is any Jewish writing and any Christian writing that claims to be written by someone that it wasn't written by. For example, um, Enoch did not write the book First Enoch. So there's a book out there called First Enoch. He did not write it. That's, that's false writing. That's, that's pseudepigraphal writing. Uh, because it, 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 not only is it not him, it was written way after Enoch was even alive. He didn't write it. In fact, did anyone watch Noah's Ark, the movie that came out in 2014 by, with Russell Crowe as the main person in it? You seen that movie, Noah's Ark? Like, it's okay to raise your hand. Like, like it's it's a super unbiblical movie, but this is a safe place for you to expose what kind of movies you watch. Uh, I, I did watch it. So, anybody? Noah's Ark, 2014, that that the one with Russell Crowe in it. Okay, so 
if you haven't seen it, let me tell you, it's not a very good movie because there's scenes where these rock monsters are helping Noah build the ark. <laughs> and, and I remember saying to myself, hmm, rock monsters. I don't remember seeing rock monsters in the book of Genesis. <laughs> Look at me. Uh, I said that to myself, and, and you might have been thinking that when you watched the movie, when you saw the rock monsters helping Noah, because, because there's no rock monsters in Genesis. That's why. <laughs> However, listen, these rock monsters do come from a book called First Enoch, where God judges certain angels, and then he judges them, and he entraps them into the very structure of the earth. And so the director of the Noah's Ark movie in 2014 was trying to depict what it would be like for angels to be trapped in the actual construction of the earth, hence rock monsters. So, so that's, folks, an example of pseudepigraphal writing. And, and this also includes why we don't have some of the other gospels that you may have heard about beyond Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, you know, those, those ones that you see on the Discovery Channel and those, those gospels that you see in the Da Vinci Code movie. And, 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 and for example, gospel, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip. Now, now here's the reality. We can trace Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John back to the first century when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were actually alive. This is a big deal. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we, we have. We've traced historically their letters back when they were still alive where they could be like, that's not me, yo. That's not me, yo. Burn that. So, so the letters we have come from when they actually were alive and could bear witness that I wrote what you are claiming I wrote. Now, now here's the reality. Uh, do you know when the gospel of Philip was written? Because we have the ability to do that now with our testing, right? Do you know when it's written? The fourth century, folks. The, the gospel of Philip was written hundreds of are hundreds of years when 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 Philip had already been dead. That's not cool. And the Gospel of Barnabas, I never knew there were so many Gospels. I know. The Gospel of Barnabas was written in the 16th century, and it was written only in Italian and Spanish alone. Folks, can't you see? These books were not written by who they claimed they were written by. They are pseudepigraphal writings. And I want you to know that. And you may be thinking right now, okay, Pastor Brandon, I'm, I'm following you the best I can, but, but I'm getting a little bit uncomfortable. I've, I've never experienced these books before, and I didn't even know some of them existed. You're, you're messing me up, and I, and I didn't even know they were out there. Are you sure they aren't true? I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit unstable and, and biblically unsure. Okay, I understand. So, so why don't we just read then some pseudepigraphal writings today? right here in church. Why don't we read a portion of the Gospel of Thomas? Why not? Seriously, let's, let's do it. This is what church is for, right? Like, let's, let's rip the band-aid off of our insecurity and our unanswered questions, and let's do this right now. Because your unspoken, I told you in the beginning of the sermon, your unspoken questions and your unspoken fears may be in the way of the redemptive Christianity series that the, that the God of the universe has set before you for such a time as this, in this era, and this season of your life. But we got to deal with these holes that exist in our hearts, consciously or subconsciously, and your complete track with me, your complete devotion and openness in the next sermon on reading and the presence of Jesus is arguably going to be the most important sermon of the entire 
series, okay? So, so let's read some pseudepigrapha right now from the Gospel of Thomas. We're not afraid. We're stepping into it. And, and I want you, uh, disciple, look, I want you to tell me if this seems like gospel work to you. Not just Pastor Brandon tell me in some commentary. You do the work. The Holy Spirit's with you now. You tell me if this sounds like gospel work, okay? Because you have more power, more power, more power than you realize in Christ with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to discern things, Christian. Because Jesus in John chapter 10 says, my sheep will know my voice, and to a stranger they will not follow. Thank you, Jesus. So we invite you right now, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Come and illuminate our eyes and our heart and tell us what we should follow and what we should not. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so, so here we go. We're in the Gospel of Thomas. Let's try to grow deep in Jesus right here. It's, it's on your screen. Gospel of Thomas, verse 114. Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. And, and Jesus said, I myself, myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, man, God's ways, God's orders, God's desire. Wait, 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 what? What? Did, did Thomas just say that women are not worthy of life? Uh, did, did Thomas just say that, that Jesus was exhorting transgenderism? Did, did Thomas just preach that Jesus was exhorting and claiming that only males can enter into the kingdom of heaven? Yuck, 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 yuck. Disgusting, right? Folks, this is false teaching, pseudepigrapha. And Thomas would have been embarrassed and ashamed to know that someone was so wrongfully impersonating him in this way. Folks, our man Thomas loved and served Christ. This work is not from the disciple or apostle Thomas who walked with Jesus. Look at me. Is this what you've been scared of the whole time? The Gospel of Thomas, the Vinci Code, this is getting you tripped up. Namely, that there's other books out there and that you might be missing out on the, the other revelation of your Messiah. Are you kidding me? You're not missing out on anything, right? Not, not at all. Always remember, people of God, it only takes one genuine material error in a book to make the whole book corrupt and fraudulent okay one just within this one verse from the gospel of thomas 114 there's four contradictions that i could identify yeah, the the genesis narrative that all people are made equal in the, in the image of god is torn down material error that, uh, that god made male and female distinctly different yet in equal in value dignity and worth is torn down material error that God is the sole author of sex and creation is torn down in verse 114. Material error number three. That the kingdom of God was for all those who have ears to hear, meaning men and women. That's torn down in Gospel of Thomas 114. Material error number four. Okay, 
so let's do some more. Let, no, 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 no. We're going to do it now. Let's go to the Gospel of Judas. It's time. Let's go to the Gospel of Judas right now. Here it is. It's on your screen. And Jesus said to Judas, but you will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. Meaning Judas folks would kill Jesus' flesh get, like, get, to get rid of it. Get rid of it, and so and so Jesus is basically saying to Judas in this passage, "Hey, Ju- hey, 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 bro, hey, Judas, you're actually the best apostle of all of them. You're most legit. You've you've really gotten a bad rap by the other apostles and the other gospels for betraying me, but ultimately you were really my best friend and you were saving me. And folks, the context, if in case you still don't get it, in this passage in the Gospel of uh, of Judas is the denial of Jesus's humanity." Is denying his humanity. And folks, that is a huge problem because our Bible, the Canum of the Old Testament and all the New Testament, teaches us that Jesus is fully God while also being a fully man, right? However, the Gospel of Judas is saying that Jesus was, was rewarding Judas. He was rewarding Judas for getting him out of this gross, nasty body we call flesh. Therefore, because he did that so well by betraying him and putting him on the cross, behold, you're the greatest disciple of them all. Okay, well, folks, that's simply not true. That's not scripture. That is a profound material error. It's false. It's pseudepigraphal writing. It's false graphe. It's, it's not written by one of the apostles, and it's not in step or in stream with the other books we have in the Bible. Okay, so, so let me give you one more, and we're going to get deep here. Okay, so, so, so eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your minds so clear. And, and this is going to come out of the infancy gospel of Thomas, okay? The infancy gospel of Thomas. And, and somebody wrote it, yes, but rest assured, folks, it was not our man Thomas. Because our man Thomas already gets a bad rap with his nickname, Doubting Thomas, Doubting Thomas. I hate that. So this brother does not deserve more problems to be attached to him with this ridiculous work in the, the infancy gospel of Thomas. But but yet, we're going to look at it. So, so, so here it is. Because someone wrote it trying to explain who Jesus was when he was a child. Like, what was Jesus like when he was a child? And, and let's just be honest, many people have been drawn a lot to this false work because they we we only have the miraculous birth of Jesus right we see that in the Bible and then it jumps to one little scene when he's 12 and then we don't see Jesus until he comes back in his 30s and so there's so many people who are curious and want to know more about those gap years that Jesus walked this planet, right? Like, we just want to know what four-year-old Jesus was like and what nine-year-old Jesus was like and what 16-year-old and probably 24-year-old Jesus was like. So it, this this gospel took on a lot, a lot, a lot of publicity, especially, folks, about two or 300 years ago. Okay, so, so what this book aims to let us know is crazy because Jesus comes on the scene in the infancy gospel looking like a divine Dennis the Menace. And I'm not kidding. For example, track with me. In the infancy gospel, four-year-old Jesus is playing with a puddle of water. And a kid comes up to him and with a stick and messes up Jesus' puddle. He goes, Nyeh! messes it up. And, and so kid Jesus, he gets super pissed off and curses the kid. And the kid withers away like a fig tree and dies immediately. 
in this gospel account. And, and then in another scene, someone is running by the road and accidentally shoulder bumps adolescent Jesus and just uh, hits him in the shoulder. And Jesus goes berserk. He gets belligerent and strikes the, the person dead, dead, dead. Okay, but then the neighbors come out. I'm not joking. Then the neighbors come to complain to Joseph and Mary because, you know, Jesus is kind of magical and he's killing people in their neighborhood. So they're just a little bit, you know, kind of uncomfortable with like a mass murderer being on the scene. And, and the story goes on that Jesus senses the neighbors complaining to his parents and strikes the entire community blind, blind folks. And, and Mary and Joseph kind of just arrive on the scene after Jesus strikes everybody blind, and they passively kind of say, well, our son is the God-man. What can we say? Like, like I'm dead serious. Pastor Brent is not making this stuff up. This is actual writings in the infancy gospel of Thomas. Okay, let's, treat, let's keep tracking because I'm not done yet. Okay, so there's another scene in this gospel account where Jesus is playing with his buddy, whose name is Zeno. His name is Zeno in the text. And Zeno, and Zeno falls down the stairs. And so, and so Mary and, 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 and uh, I'm sorry, Zeno falls down the stairs and he dies. And so Mary and Joseph approach uh, kid Jesus and they're asking him if he, you know, pushed Zeno down the stairs and, and killed him. And Jesus responds to his parents and he's like, Absolutely not, Mom and Dad. I definitely didn't do it. I would never kill Zeno. Unwarranted. <laughs> this, is, this is real. And, and Mary and Joseph kind of look at each other, and they're concerned that Jesus isn't being fully honest. And so they ask him again, did you kill Zeno and push him down the stairs? And then Jesus responds and says, I promise you I did not kill Zeno. I'll even show you. And so nine-year-old Jesus raises Zeno from the dead. And he asks him and poses the question, Hey, Zeno, I have, I have resurrected you. Did I push you down those stairs? And then the boy, little Zeno, says, Jesus didn't do it. I fell on accident. And Jesus turns to his parents. He's, and he's like, like, I told you I didn't do it. And then Zeno drops back down, dead. Okay, folks, that's not scripture. That's not anointed. That is not inspired word of God. And for some of you who are thinking right now, because I know some of you are thinking this, Oh my gosh, I never knew this. Why all the controversy then? Why are we struggling? Why do people struggle to trust their Bible with all this stuff? I've never even had a deep dive into stuff like this. But but what you're presenting, this seems pretty simple to me. Okay, okay, pay attention. Two, I have two responses to that. Number one. As your pastor, I'm doing significantly more heavy lifting than you realize so that you're able to see obvious portions from these gospels that I know that you can quickly discern light from darkness in. Truth number two, however, it is important for you to understand that most of the gospel of Thomas and most of the gospel of Judas and most of the pseudepigraphal writings in general do share large portions of true and accurate accounts of both Jesus and the Bible. So, are you getting confused yet? Keep tracking with me. Folks, this ridiculous account and more like what I just read make up only about 15 to at the most around 31% of pseudopigraphal writings that claim to be scripture. So what I'm saying is in the Gospel of Thomas, there's about 15% of that book that acts like this, but the other 85% almost goes identical with the Gospels that me and you have come to worship. And that's why we're talking about this today. 
That is why I'm dedicating an entire sermon to focus on this in the context of teaching and preaching for us as disciples who are going to be evangelizing in a postmodern world when we get hit with things from the Discovery Channel or the History Channel and things like that. Because I really do want us to be biblically literate disciples and leaders in the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Because part of being in the presence of Jesus is knowing him intimately, folks, and knowing what people's words are just, when people's words are just rumors and false accounts about our king. You need to develop spiritual lenses and redemptive lenses that can quickly discern when someone is not talking about the real and true Jesus or therefore the Bible. Okay, so so pseudepigraphal, is, is pseudepigrapha scripture? Out loud. Is pseudepigrapha scripture? No. No. No with 100% certainty that you cannot, folks, turn to pseudepigraphal writings to learn more about Jesus or to, more, or to gain deeper insights about the Bible, okay? You can't do it. The works are not scripture. At best, pseudepigraphal writings can sometimes help us understand historical culture of that time. But at worst, listen, they simply are massive distractions to the genuine work and passion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, for me as your pastor and with great discipline, I can perhaps gain a few helpful insights into the culture of that time, but for the sake and, um, excuse me, but but that would be for the soul and the explicit um, purpose of having, working on my cultural eyes at best of that period of time. But for you as a member of RCC or as a, um, as a um, guest today listening you're better off avoiding these works altogether. There's just not enough good there for you. Okay, so we talked about one type of writing or genre that doesn't belong in the Bible, all the pseudepigraphal writings. Here's, here's the next one. It's, it's on your screen. The Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Scrolls. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody? Because chances are, many people have accidentally probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so here's a simple yet hopefully helpful pastoral definition that I've put together without making it super difficult and unnecessary of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's, it's on your screen. The Dead Sea Scrolls are simply Jewish religious writings from a small sect or religious community called the Essenes that felt Judaism or Christianity, folks of that time, had become corrupt, okay? So that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. They're simply Jewish writings from a, from a religious community called the, the Essenes that felt Judaism, which was at that time what, would be, what we would call Christianity, all that they had, had become corrupted. And so they constructed, folks, these scrolls and planted their community literally by the Dead Sea, and, and at a place called Qumran, okay, it was called Qumran around the first century. So essentially, the Dead Sea Scrolls was their attempt to purify and to reclaim faith that had become 
corrupt. Does, does that make sense? Okay, so, so we actually found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946 when this little shepherd boy was just kind of playing outside and he was throwing rocks towards a cave. And so one of the rocks went into the cave and then he heard like the sound of what would sound like pottery breaking. And so the story goes on. It's a whole thing and that's what you learn in seminary. But the, but the bottom line is it, what goes on is that they end up finding one of the most substantial archaeological findings of the entire 1900s, folks, in those Dead Sea Scrolls, not just for like one of the top archaeological findings, period, not just religious findings, period. It was it was a massive find because in that moment we found the ready. We found the religious writings from this group, for these dead, these 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 Essenes. We found um, the, the what they had. They, we found all of these historical writings, including some of the books of the Bible that we already had. Now they weren't new books. Don't get they weren't new books, but they were older copies of books that we already had. For example, we found this is legit. We found a full length scroll of the Book of Isaiah that was written one thousand years earlier than the previous scroll that we had possession of and that was a fantastic find because it showed us almost it showed that there was almost no change at all from the one we had so so what i mean is this is this is great so so we had a scroll of isaiah that we're like this is scripture it's the oldest one we have but then we found one that was a thousand years earlier and we juxtaposed them so we have ours and then we found one that's even a thousand years older and it was exactly the same meaning god's preserving his scrolls and they're not changing with material error. It was a huge, huge find. Okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls are just religious writings from this group of Jews from the first century. Okay, that's it. It's not scary. It's not mystical. It's not woo. Like the Dead Sea Scrolls are opening now. It's gonna like no, 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 no. It's it's writings from the Jews that we found that are super old from the first century. That's it. It doesn't have to stress you out. Okay, so, so pseudepigrapha is not scripture. It, it could be marginally helpful to a few, but it is usually distracting to the most. And it's filled with in inaccuracies. And, dead, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are not magical. They're not scripture. But they do contain helpful copies of scripture that we already have that, and that we care about, as well as other opportunities for us to understand history of Judaism. That's it. But there was nothing holy, special, or secret, or mystical about them at all. Now, now let's talk about a, a third type of genre or writing that doesn't belong in Scripture. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. The Apocrypha. Everybody say, the Apocrypha. Okay, the Apocrypha. Now, just before I lay out this simple yet profound definition of what the Apocrypha is, I want to have a short conversation right now with anyone listening to this sermon that comes from a Catholic background. And, and, and as the pastor of this church, I want to be honest, this sermon is, is a difficult one for me, and it's often, I, I've tried to deal with this kind of conversation one-on-one -on -one in discipleship, and I've, for a long time, avoided doing this from the stage because I want you to know something really quickly. This may be sensitive. It 
And my job is to love you and to love Christ and help people to meet Jesus. And I never want to be a distraction with unhelpful things. So, so if you're, but, but, but it's time now. In the, in, the, in, the, in the era that we're living in, it's time for me to step into this. So, so, so if you're Catholic or you come from a Catholic background, hey, look at me. I want you to know, okay, you're loved here. And if I was sitting with you over dinner or lunch and you actually could track with me and talk with me, you would see that love. I'm not up here bashing. You are welcome here. You are loved here. You're free to ask me questions here. It's okay. Seriously, you're free to disagree with me to wrestle with me, to wrestle with what we're going to talk about. I want you to have that, that permission today because what I'm about to talk about might be considered sacred to you, okay? And I'm holding that intention. However, I want you to, fa- I just want to faithfully put all my cards here on the table as the lead pastor here of RCC because around here, we joyfully refer to ourselves as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians, you're going to hear that around here. I'm a, I say it all the time in my sermons. But, but I want to acknowledge today that, that, that that's family talk, and, and it's not super clear, and it, and it may not be super helpful to you. So, so let me be more formal. I know how to do that. Let me be more formal. So, here, so what I want you to know, uh, here at Redemption City Church, we are, we are historically traditional. We're largely Reformed, Orthodox, Protestants, okay? And that, that's the language. We're, we're historically traditional. We're, we're largely Reformed, Orthodox, Protestants. And, and all these fancy words, folks, basically, when they, they come together, and what it basically means is that we believe in the Old Testament alone and the, and the New Testament alone to be God's Word. Okay, that's, that's, what, that's who we are. And that means we do not count the Apocrypha as Scripture and as divine and as inspired, okay? But, but I hope that doesn't freak you out or, or scare you if you're coming from that background. Like, don't, don't close your heart off. Stay, stay with me for a minute. In fact, I want you to know that some of the coolest people that I know, I'm serious, have come from a Catholic background. And they're deepening out. And I love them. And I call them brothers and sisters of Christ now, okay? So, so hear me say this. My job here is simply to lay this information that I'm getting ready to unpack before our church so we can be equipped. And I want to lay that before you as well so you can grow well in Jesus. I want that for you too. So if you're Catholic or you come from a Catholic background, listen, as we explore today, simply take this information and I want you to wrestle with it for what you see, okay? There's no pressure. And don't hesitate to come up and talk with me. Email me. Call me. It's an open-door policy, okay? Now, with that being said, here's a simple yet profound definition on the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are the writings of the Jews from the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? So it's that intertestamental period of time, the period of silence. So, so books like First and Second Maccabees or, or Tobit or Judith or Sirach or the Wisdom of Solomon and others like that are the apocryphal writings. And if you grew up in a Catholic background um, or you're from the Greek Orthodox background, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, oh yeah, man, I studied them whole life. You know, first Maccabees, we, uh, you know, I had to do that for, for my, and, and when I was 12, I memorized first Maccabees. Like it makes total sense. Uh, but, but if you're, but if you're not from a Catholic background or Greek Orthodox, this, this may be kind of, kind of different for you. Okay. So the Apocrypha folks, the Apocrypha 
is basically found in the Catholic Bible. And what you would find the Apocrypha either um, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in their Bible, it would say the Old Testament, then the Apocrypha or the New Testament. Or in some Catholic Bibles, it's Old Testament, New Testament, and then the Apocrypha is at the end. Or the Apocrypha is mixed all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And depending on which three of those depends on the Catholic expression. Okay? This, I, want you to, I want you to be with me too. This is, I know this is a lot. However, we hold as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians or historically traditional, largely Reformed, Protestant, Orthodox Christians that the Apocrypha is not Scripture. Only the Old Testament is and the New Testament now, I want to lay out six main reasons why the Apocrypha is not Scripture, okay? Here's, here's the first one. It's, it's on your screen. The Apocrypha is not Scripture because it was never considered part of the original Hebrew Bible. Folks, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew with some parts of it written in Aramaic right? Okay, well, the Apocrypha is not part of any of that work at all. So you may be wondering, where does the Apocrypha actually come from? Like, where does it come from? How, 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 did, how did it get here? So let's talk about that. So there's this guy in history that you may have heard of. His name is Alexander the Great. Ever heard of him? And, and though he died at 32 years young, he still managed to conquer all the known world of that time. So basically, our man Alex, he's more legit than you and me, okay? Like, what did you and I do in our 20s? Because I'd be all confident saying, all right, well, when I was 19, I became a pastor. And by the time I was in my 20s, I was married and I bought a house. And I started my own camp uh, business. And, and I started an athletic business. Like, I did a really good job in my 20s. And, and then Alexander the Great would turn to me and say, that's cool, dude, but uh, I just conquered the whole world before my 30th birthday and made my language the common language on the entire planet. That's what I did in my 20s. No biggie. Oh, folks, our man, is it known for being Alexander the Decent? The man's name is Alexander the Great, okay? So, so Alex, Alexander, Alex, conquers the known world and spreads Greek culture and Greek influence all over the planet. And I'm not joking. And as a result, everyone starts to speak Greek as their main language. It was, the, it was becoming the common language of the world. Okay, so from there, what do you think the Jews are doing? Think about this. this is not, so the Jews decided that the Old Testament that they had that was written in Hebrew, it was time for it now to be translated to Greek. So all this hoopla about like, oh, we can't trust the Bible because it's in different translations and then this happened. It's like, stop it. Like, it's not that deep. It's, it's, it's just logical. It's like Alexander the Great conquered the world. He, everybody's being forced to speak Greek. The Hebrew language is being lost. All they did was say, because the Greek language is, is, is the new language and the Hebrew language is being lost, let's translate it while we're still deepened out and can do the translation well. So they stepped into that. They stepped into this translation process. Okay, and because, and remember, the Jewish boys and the little girls at this time that we're talking about they were losing their language. They were starting to speak like a mix of Greek and Hebrew, and they weren't being 
fluent anymore. Just like how you would think of like a lot of Asian kids and Hispanic kids in America are losing their language. At best, they they kind of speak in and out of English and their their native tongue. Does that does that make sense? So the Jews leaned into this translation process. It was a very important time in history um, for the, for the Old Testament to move out of Hebrew into the Greek, and it was to preserve God's word for the next generation. It was just practical. It's, but here now, track with me. This Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Everybody say the Septuagint. Okay, you don't have to remember that, but but focus. Okay, I'm trying to break this down in order to increase your biblical confidence without contributing anything unhelpful in my communication that's often found Honestly, folks, in seminary circles and intellectual circles, because this is not complicated and it's not complex. It's not rocket science. It's practical and it's simple. So so starting today, we need to stop feeling inferior in our faith and in our biblical proudness just because we don't know a bunch of arbitrary facts. Treat today like knowing what you need to know, okay? Okay, so when this Greek translation of the Bible, the Kanum, which is called the Septuagint, when it was being translated, some of the Jews at that time said, you know, since we're already um, doing this heavy work of translating the entire Old Testament into the Greek language, we might as well keep this factory line going and translate all the other important Jewish books for our piety and our history into Greek too. Literally, that's what they said. Now, folks, the Jews, I'm not even, the Jews didn't, didn't think, nor did they ever claim that the other works that they were translating were scripture. Never did they say that. They simply included the other works in the translating processing table since they were already at work doing translation. Okay, folks, I want you to get this. It would be like going to a major print. It'd be like you or me saying, I'm going to run for president. And we go to a major printing press and we rent their machines for $15,000 a day for our presidential campaign to prepare to run for office. And then it'd be like you or me saying to ourselves, you know what? Since I'm spending $15,000 a day to rent this warehouse with these printing presses, I might as well make the most use of it and also print off my personal family books. And, you know, I always wanted my journal to be printed out. And I have some diaries that I want to get printed out and, and anything else that you can come up with to make the, the best use of renting this facility of the printing press. So, so I just want you to know that it's kind of a big deal that the Jews themselves who were at the translating table never, ever, ever said that the Apocrypha, that they wrote themselves, was Scripture. Never. It's not there. And folks, they're the ones that actually wrote it, and they're saying it's not Scripture. All right. Here's another reason. Number two. Another reason why the Apocrypha, number one's huge. Another reason why the Apocrypha is not Scripture is because it never is mentioned as having divine authority from any biblical author, and it is never quoted in the New Testament. Never. Folks, the New Testament is constantly quoting things from the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy and Psalms and Isaiah and Genesis and things like that. But there's not one single instance of a biblical author ever quoting anything from the Apocrypha. 
Okay? It's just, it doesn't happen. Not even one time. In fact, even when the Bible, rarely does it do this, but even when the Bible quotes outside of itself, it's still not from the Apocrypha. Okay? So, so when Peter and Jude, I want you to know this. So when Peter and Jude reference First Enoch, they do, like some things from First Enoch. So when, when Peter and Jude reference some material from First Enoch, it's still not coming from the Apocrypha. Are you, and when Paul in Acts chapter 17 is teaching at Mars Hill, okay, so he's, he comes on the scene, he's teaching at Mars Hill to the Greek poets and the philosophers of that time and starts to quote other Greek philosophers, not even then does he mention the Apocrypha at all. He doesn't even quote it, ever. Okay, that's a big deal. So here's a third reason why, though, the Apocrypha isn't Scripture, the Apocrypha isn't scripture because it was not accepted by the Jews as scripture. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you what, th this is just facts. Okay, so, so I'm going to read you a few quotes. Do you know who? I'm going to read it from Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. This is going to be big. Here he is. Here's this quote. It's, it's on your screen. Wait till I tell you who he is in just a minute. Here it is. A quote from the historian Josephus. From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with early records because of the failure of the exact secession of the prophets. Oh, man. And, and basically, he was saying that, that, that we as Jews have recorded the Apocrypha as a part of our history but we don't think it's scripture. He's saying that. And that was so important to understand regarding the Apocrypha. Just because something is historical doesn't mean it's scripture. I'm going to say to you again, just because something is recorded as history doesn't mean it is scripture. Just know that. Okay, now here's a quote from the Babylonian um, Talmud. Okay, this is, this is, this is important. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. After the latter prophet Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. Oh my, after the latter prophet Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. Folks, we're not in the Bible right now. We're, from the, we're reading out of the Babylonian Talmud, okay? And the Babylonian ancient text is saying, after Malachi died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. And this means God stopped giving his authoritative word during these 400 years, okay? I don't think you're getting this. Even the Babylonians, not the Christians, the Babylonians who recognized God because of the ministry of Daniel. You remember that? Remember the ministry of Daniel? And he, and he comes, he on the scene, he keeps his God. And so there's some evangelism that goes on there, okay, in, in between the lines. And so, so even the Babylonians, from a totally different culture, even they knew and didn't consider that that 400 years of silence had anything inspired or divined at all, hence the Apocrypha. Okay, so now let's move to the next one. The Apocrypha isn't scripture because it has historical and geographical and theological errors in it, folks. It has errors all over the place. And we talked about that. God, is he can't lie. For example, okay, track with me. For example, the book of Judith says that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Assyria. 
But he wasn't, folks, because our Bible tells us that he was the king of Babylon. But more importantly, the Babylonian ancient writings say that he was the king of Babylon. And there's no ancient writings from Assyria. That's, there's, no, there, there's no King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. Now, how in the earth, how do you get that wrong? Okay, the book of Tob I'm, I'm sorry, this is apocryphal. The book of Tobit teaches that teaches justification by works, especially by works of charity. Okay, that's wrong. What that means is you are justified and you get into a right relationship with Jesus by doing charity. That's in the apocrypha. Wrong, 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 wrong. Okay, the book of the book of wisdom of Solomon teaches that God, this is all from the Apocrypha, that God made the universe out of already pre-existing matter. You know how we said that God made the world out of nothing? The Apocrypha teaches that God, there was already pre-existing matter, and all God did was manipulate it into something. Okay, that's wrong. It's dead wrong. And honestly, folks, there's even more massively offensive verses in the Apocrypha that are accepted by the Catholic faith and tradition. Okay, so, so here's one from Sirach, chapter 42, verse 14. I'm just going to put it on the screen. All I'm doing is laying it out for you. I'm laying information out. We wrestle, okay? Sirach, chapter 42, verse 14. A man's wickedness is better than a woman's goodness. <clears throat> in other words, a man on his worst day is better than a woman on her best day. Because women bring shame and disgrace. That's Ugh, disgusting. Yuck. This is not scripture. This stuff is filled with theological, historical, and geographical errors. Okay, so let's try to another reason um, I'm going to present right now as why the Apocrypha, it, it, it's, it's not scripture, okay? Here, here it is. The Apocrypha isn't scripture because it doesn't, because it, it doesn't claim itself to be scripture. And in the Apocrypha, it says the opposite. I know this is a weird one, but it's that plain and simple, folks. In fact, at least two times that I could identify, the Apocrypha itself talked about how God has ceased to give revelation to them in that time. In the, the Apocrypha, that's just me trying to find two examples. The text literally says, Oh God, how long will we wait? And oh, how we long to hear your voice again. We await your revelation as we sit in darkness. That's in the text. Okay, now, now the next thing is going to be a bit confusing. So let me just read it first. I'm going to read it to you first, and then I'm going to explain it. Okay, I'm going to read it and then explain it. Jerome, I'm right here. Jerome, who wrote the Vulgate in 404 AD, said that it wasn't scripture in his preface. I know it's like, what does that mean? Who's Jerome Vulgate? I know, I know. One more time. Jerome, who wrote the Vulgate, some people know, who wrote the Vulgate in 404, said that it wasn't scripture in his preface, namely the Apocrypha. Okay. So the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. Do you know what that's called? It's called the Vulgate, folks. It's called the Vulgate. And so Jerome, who was an early church father, okay, he was an early church father, translated 
the, the, the Bible from the Hebrew language to the Greek language. Uh, um, the, he translated the Greek Bible that was the Hebrew Bible that was in Greek into Latin, okay? And that's the official Bible of the Catholic Church today, okay? The Latin Bible. And in his preface, so the guy, the, the, the actual guy who wrote the Catholic Bible, the, the Catholic Bible, the, the man who wrote the Catholic Bible in his preface, which means right in the beginning of his writing, in his translation, in the first official Bible of the Catholic Church, he says, I want you to know that the Apocrypha is not Scripture. It is not on the same level as Scripture. Oh, folks, I'm not joking. I'm not making this stuff up. You don't have to be afraid of what's out there. It's plain and it's simple. Now, now let's track to this final reason that I presented. It's not the only ones, it's the ones that I'm giving us so we can have what we need to be confident in this postmodern Christian world. Here it is, it's on your screen, number six. The Apocrypha wasn't canonized until over a thousand years later. One thousand years later, plus some, folks, plus some. That's incredible. Do you know when the Apocrypha was actually and officially canonized? And like, so we have the Old Testament canonized, 435 BC, and then eventually the New Testament happens. Do you know when the Apocrypha finally is accepted by the Catholic Church as scripture? First century? Nope. Second century? Nah. Third, fifth century? Mm -mm. It wasn't until 1546. 1,546 years after Jesus had already been gone. And I want you to know that it wasn't even a category of thought until Martin Luther and Protestantism threatened the religious landscape of the Catholic Church at that time. Folks, I'm just the, canoni the canonization of the Apocrypha was directly linked in response to Martin Luther. I don't want to camp out here, but let me just tell you a few things. Even as close as six years before Martin Luther became public with his writings that were controversial, the canonization of the Apocrypha was not even a conversation happening in the Catholic Church. And, and all you need to know about Martin Luther to make this make sense is that he came and what he was teaching was in conflict with the church who was trying to keep a disproportionate authority in the church instead of what the Bible teaches. We are empowered in Christ with direct access to God and so many other things. Okay, track with me, track with me, track with me. So again, if you're, if you're Catholic or you come from this background, I, I really do love you. I love you. And I'm not trying to bring any, any harm today, but I do want to present this information to you that you may not know. This is not hard to find. You could do this research. Okay, this is very simple. You won't find any errors in what I'm teaching you today. Okay, let's, let's move on to a final writing. I, I don't want to camp out here too long on the Apocrypha, but let's, let's, let's move to a final writing that we don't accept in the Bible as a, as a genre or a type. But, 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 but before I look at these final writings or these final genres, I just want to say a few words again to anyone who may come from these different faith traditions that we're going to talk about, especially if it's from the one I'm about to mention first in just a few moments. I want to be loving today. So same word to you as well, okay? 
We love you. I love you. You are welcomed here at RCC. You are free completely to wrestle here and disagree. You're free to reach out to our ministry and to talk with us. I'd love to hang out with you outside and to talk or, or to have a Zoom conference, like whatever we need to do, okay? We're, we're open here to talk about these things. And then everyone here at Redemption City Church, uh, I want you to know that we're all broken here. So if you're listening from a Catholic background or some other background that we're about to talk about, hey, we're all broken here. And we're all trying to find God, right, in the scriptures. And so we just want to invite you to, to wrestle with us as we do the same thing alongside you, okay? Okay, so okay, so the pseudepigrapha, the pseudepigrapha is not scripture, but it can be insightful sometimes. Let's review. Sometimes, right? And, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are, are not scripture, but it contains great historical findings, right? And some, some really cool copies that are older of the Bible that we have come to know and accept, um, but, it's, but it's not scripture. And then we learn that the Apocrypha, which is a very important structure in the Catholic Church, is, is not scripture, but it could be helpful from a historical point of view to, to learn some things culturally. But now, but now, folks, here's the thing. I'm going to mention genres that are not only not scripture, but they're not helpful at all. Not at all. Because everything we've talked about so far, they at least have some helpful realities in them, okay? But these final ones, listen to me, these final ones we're about to discuss, they're harmful. They're harmful. And they're written hundreds and thousands of years after. And they're harmful, okay? So, so let's talk about that. They're going to go directly against the Bible, they got to contradict the Bible for everything it stands for, and they're not God's word, okay? Here, 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 here's the next, here it is. It's on your screen. Number four, a genre or a type that's not scripture. The Quran. The Quran. Okay, so in the 600s, an angel comes to Muhammad, okay? Muhammad's a prophet in, in, in Islam. So he come, an angel comes to Muhammad and says, the things in the, Bible have, things in the Bible and in the church have become corrupt. Here's a new revelation that is ultimately God's word. Now, this, this is important. I told you something earlier, now I want to bring it back. The fact that an angel appears to Muhammad, here's what's happening. The Jewish faith that accepts the Genesis of Malachi, folks, that was the that, that that's the faith of God. That's the religion. All these different set, subgroups of Islam, Mormonism, it they all come from the Jewish tradition. The Old Testament is accepted. What happens here in the 600s is an angel appears to Muhammad and says, "Hey, you've been walking in the Jewish faith." You've been walking in the Jewish traditions. You have been accepting the Jewish Bible as authority of the, from Genesis to Malachi. That's why the Old Testament is so solid, okay? So, and he's saying, now the angel comes to Muhammad and says, hey, the church, the people, the Jews, you, all of you, you it's corrupt. Here's a new revelation, a new revelation of God's Old Testament and God's New Testament, but folks, it's not God's word. The Quran is not God's word. It is not helpful. It is only hurtful. Please know that. But I want you to know and to hold this intention that everything the Quran is built upon, the Quran story starts with an angel that appears to Muhammad, okay? Remember that. I'm going to talk about that later in, this, in, in today's sermon. Remember, the entire Quran, the entire Islamic faith starts with Muhammad 
who was walking as a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christian, let's just call it that, and then an angel appears and says, I have a new revelation that comes after the Old and the New Testament. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. Here we go. Number five, here's another genre or type that does not belong in the Bible. The Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon. Okay, so, so the Book of Mormon comes from the Church of Jesus and the Latter-day Saints. Okay, have you heard of that? The Mormons, the Church of, the Church of Jesus of the Latter-day Saints. And their claim, guess what, is that an angel came to New York and spoke to a guy named Joseph Smith in the mid-1800s, just a couple, 200 years ago, okay? So an angel comes like 200 years ago in the 1800s and, 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 and meets Joseph in New York and says, Behold, here's a new revelation. The Bible and the church have been corrupted by Satan, so here's what God really wants you to know. That's the start of the... So, so, so that's the start. And, and that's really weird because Jesus promised that the gates of Hades or the gates of hell would not prevail against his church and his Bible. He said it will never happen. Hmm. Okay, so let, hold that intention. So, so, so an angel comes and meets Muhammad in the 600s and says, the Old and the old New Testament's corrupt. I have a new revelation an angel in 1800s meets Joseph in New York and says, the Old Testament Testament is corrupted, the church is corrupted, I have a new revelation. Okay, keep hold that. Now, here's number six. Here's another, another genre and type of book that doesn't belong to be in the scriptures. It's not holy, it's not inspired. Here it is. The New World Translation of the Bible. The new translation world, I mean, the new world translation of the Bible. And this book, this book, you know what this book is? This book is, it comes from Jehovah Witnesses at the Watchtower and Bible and Tract Society. Okay, so, so from the Watchtower, Bible and Tract Society comes this Bible, their, their anointed scripture, the new world translation of the Bible. It comes from, it's, it's, it's from the Jehovah Witnesses. Okay, okay. And folks, in the New World Translation of the Bible, they remove all references to the deity of Jesus. Wow. So it's the Old Testament and New Testament, but it completely removes any reference of Jesus being God. Okay, let's keep going. Here's, here's number seven, another, another holy book that's not holy. It's not inspired. Okay, here it is. It's, it's on your screen. The Science and Health Book, okay? The Science and Health Book. And, and this is a religious book from Mary Baker Eddy, who founded the Christian Science Faith Religion Movement. <laughs> Indeed, in the, in the late 1800s, which, so, so in the 1800s, an angel meets Joseph and says, this is the real religion. But at the same time, um, in this religion, uh, an angel's coming down on the scene in the 1800s, um, and this religion is, it focuses on equality. And so it's like, oh, the Bible didn't teach equality well, so this is the real faith about equality. And so it burst onto the scenes in the 1800s, and it still exists today in small factions. And Mary, Mary Baker Eddy was considered a prophet, and she wrote, she wrote, the science and health book, religious book. But folks, it's not scripture. It's not inspired by God. God's not in the book, folks. Okay, here's, 
Here's the final genre that I want you to be aware of as a, as a Bible-believing Christ is all the Christian, living vibrantly in our world today so you can press against the darkness. Here it is, number eight. It's, it's on your screen. Dianetics, okay? The book Dianetics. Dianetics. And Dianetics is by R, uh, excuse me, L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology. Okay, and and most of us know Scientology because of Tom Cruise, right? It's like Scientology for some of us just means, oh, that's that religion that Tom Cruise is a part of, right? So, so Scientology. Okay, so 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 the Quran and the Book of Mormon and the New World Translation of the Bible and the Science and Health book from Mary, Mary Becker Eddy and Dianetics. These are not God's word. These genres are not God's word. And not only are they not God's word, they are specifically constructed to distract you and turn you away from God's word and particularly Jesus. Are you tracking? So if you come from any of those traditions, and if that's any of your family background I've I've presented today, look at me. I love you. We love you. I just want to lay this information faithfully before you. And all I'm asking of you today is that you would at least entertain what I'm saying and that you would wrestle with it a little bit in your heart. Don't just accept because your mom and dad, like wrestle with it for yourself, okay? Now, 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 how can we know for sure that God isn't going to give us more scriptures? It's like, Pastor Brandon, you're saying this, this is not. So how can I just know though? I need to know. I need to know how can I know that God isn't going to give more scripture to, to people that I need to know about. Okay, well, let me lay before you the scriptures today that directly speak to that question in your heart. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. It's, it's on your screen. So here Paul says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Keep going. But in these last days, oh man, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Oh man, I'm going to read that again slower. We're going to get in this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our Father by the prophets. So there was a time, folks, where he did that. But, meaning no more. No more is he doing that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Who's his Son? Jesus. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, everything. Oh, that's that's everything. Through whom also he created the world. So he's given so Jesus, he created the world. And in Jesus, he appointed the heir of everything. So there's a time where where there's a time where God is speaking through prophets, and there's a time where he ends that and says, only through my son, my son, I'm gonna speak. Okay. So in this passage, God is saying that he he used to speak to us in a bunch of ways, but now he's selectively speaking to us his final revelations to be found in Christ. And our Bible teaches us that Christ is who we find the fullness of God in. 
That's where we dwell, and that's where God dwells in bodily form. Jesus. Okay. Jesus is literally the Word of God, and by extension of Jesus, so are the apostles. Folks, okay, if God is saying that there was a time where he spoke through prophets, but now he speaks only through his Son, who's the only one who has authority to say what Scripture is from that point on? Jesus. Okay, so, so Jesus says, what I say is authority. What I say is scripture. And then Jesus says, I'm granting you 11 and you alone the authority to continue to do this. And I'm going to leave with you my Holy Spirit to finish the work. He's going to bring, he's going to bring remembrance to everything that I already taught you. So when the, when the apostles are teaching and they're writing, they're still writing from the voice of Jesus because Jesus said so. But, and then the other religions who are denying Jesus, they're, they're literally denying the only one who has the power to speak revelation because God said so. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. Are you, are you with me? Oh, man. Look, look at this from Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. It's, it's very productive. But <laughs> this, this is important. But even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. Oh man, it can't be more clear than that, folks. God is not patient with those who are attempting to twist his gospel, okay? No patience. If you do it, you're accursed. In fact, God is very harsh to those who twist his gospel. That's why he's laying it out that way. You, you're damned to hell. That's what the text is showing. That's what it means to be accursed. You're damned to hell. You're accursed. <sighs> okay, the Bible itself, like think about this. The Bible itself warns us that there are going to be people who are going to claim to be prophets. He already spoke before that Muhammad was coming. And Joseph Smith and Mary Becker Eddy were coming. He says, there's going to be, it's right here. It's right here in verse 8 of Galatians. And the Bible warns us and says, hey, these are bad angels. They're going to give contrary doctrines. They're going to add and distract you from the truth of Jesus. Jesus alone has authority to speak on, on what scripture is and what it's not. But there's going to be bad angels that come. And folks, in case you didn't know, that's what a demon is. A demon is a bad angel. It's an angel that's gone rogue. That is, I didn't know. Yeah, an, a demon is an angel that's gone rogue and decided to usurp Jesus's and God's authority. That's what a demon is. And remember when I that, now remember when I told you to hold attention that Muhammad. The entire Quran, the entire Islamic faith, starts with an angel. In the 600s, 600 years after all the New Testament stuff is done, and Jesus says it's done, 600 years later, an angel comes to Muhammad. 1,800 years later, an angel comes to Joseph. Remember I told you a whole lot of intention? Literally, the angel comes, and Paul already warned us it was going to happen in Galatians. Let me read it to you again. Here it is. It's on your screen. But even if we, Paul's saying, even if I, Paul's saying, if I lose my mind and I try to show up at 95 and say, actually, I'm not done, God says something more, or an angel from heaven, an angel from heaven. 
So it's like Christians, you don't have to be afraid of like, you know, like the, uh, 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 you can't, you can't tell me that an angel didn't visit Muhammad. We have proof. We have things. And he got burnt on the arm. And that's we like, we know for a fact that, that an angel, Hey, Hey, I'm not saying an angel didn't meet Muhammad. And I'm not claiming that an angel didn't talk to Joseph Smith. You ain't got to get caught up in that argument, Christians. That's not the argument. When you meet with a brother or sister who's saying that they have evidence and claims that their guy, their Joseph or Muhammad, their, their, their pillars met an angel, that's not a problem. It's like, okay, cool. I'm not going to say an angel didn't meet you. I'm just saying that, that wasn't an angel from the Lord. That's a demon. Because right here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, even if, it's, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary, let that angel from heaven be accursed. So that means whatever angel came to Muhammad at that moment, and whatever angel came to Joseph in that moment became accursed because they got out of step with God. They went rogue. And they ceased being an angel in that moment. And they were a demon. Okay, so, so let me track. Focus, focus, focus. And if you're thinking, Pastor Brandon, I don't, I don't know about all this. Like, I have a couple buddies of mine, and, and he's a Hindu, and he's really, really nice, and he's, he, he's awesome to me. And I have this other buddy, he's a Mormon, and he's honestly like one of my best friends from, from elementary school, and, and he's super spiritual. You'd, you'd love him. And, and I have this buddy who I work with, he's, he's a Buddhist, and honestly, I've never met a nicer person on the planet, even compared to Christians. Okay, guess what? The Bible talks about that too, folks. The Bible's productive. The Bible talks about those who are in our lives that are generally good people and they're nice people and they're well-intentioned people. So let's check it out. What does the Bible say about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? It's, it's on your, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. It's, it's on your screen. And so Paul says, And what I'm doing... I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Oh my goodness. This is the Bible, folks. And basically, Paul is trying to cut the legs out from anyone that says that they're like us as Christians, folks, because they're not. He's trying to put a stop to people who look like Christians and behave like Christians and have Christian morals and ethics. But folks, they're not genuine Christ followers. Doesn't matter how pleasant they are. But, but look at what Paul says about these people who operate like that. Not that the people who are doing bad, like even if they are claiming to do things like we do and they're claiming to do all these things. Here's what Paul says, who's inspired by God, meaning the Holy Spirit, meaning Jesus is speaking through Paul because Jesus said he would. Look at, so, so look at what Jesus says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, and what happens after that. Here it is, it's on your screen. So, so again, and what I'm doing, Paul saying, and what I'm doing, because Christ is compelling me to do it, I will continue to do. Why? Why? Well, in order to undermine, he's literally saying, I, I, I want to undermine it. I want to cut it. Undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted faith, religion, and mission, they are working the same. 
so, so folks, what we're dealing with right here in the text is like, like, oh, it doesn't matter what religion you are, as long as you're good and you all help people, you can find God in all the religions. Like, no, he's saying, hey, I'm trying to cut that out. I'm undermining the claim of those who are claiming that they can be boasting in the same work that we do. Ready for this? Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's sobering. Verse 14. And no wonder, Paul's saying, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Oh man, there's so much here, right? Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Folks, because because the devil, do you think the devil is just going to show up and say, Hey, I'm the devil, so follow me as I take you to hell. Like, like no way, right? Instead, he's going to appear as an angel of light in glory, attractive, compelling. He's going to compel you with beautiful truth, and, and he's going to be seductive. And he's going to be super convincing and super religious. He's not going to come pagan. He's going to come hyper-religious. Do you, do you get that? Think about it this way. The closer and more religious the lie is, the more Satan's fingerprints, folks, can be seen on it. I'm going to say it again. The closer and more religious a lie is, the more Satan's fingerprints can be seen on it. Therefore, the cults and the religious groups that are most dangerous are the ones that are appearing most like Christianity. The, one, the closer they look like Christianity, the more dangerous they are because the enemy parades. That's what Paul's saying in the text. The enemy parades around as an angel of light and he woos you in. And then, and then before you know it, he shows himself to be the angel of death and eternity in hell. And so it's dangerous because instead of trying to convince people of a lie, Satan chooses to give you truth and mix it with a little lie. And he puts it together and he confuses people. That's what Paul's teaching. Okay, now, now here's the question for, for us to really think about today as we prepare to land the plane. What do we, meaning me, you, what do we actually do with all of what we've learned today? We've learned about what, what books are in the Bible. We've learned about the Old Testament, right? The, the canum that was closed in 435. And then we, we learned about the period of, of, of silence and, and how God did not speak. He was not doing anything. He was not sharing revelation. And then he shows back up uh, doing his work through John the Baptist and then uh, who proclaims Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And then we see Jesus gets the authority as the last one to speak the final revelations. And he extends his final revelations only through his 11 disciples who walked with him or were attached to them. And he says, no more, nothing else. And then Jesus speaks. Oh, I can't wait to get this. Uh, not, not, not just inspiring, but Jesus speaks through Paul and teaches us there's going to be angels from my house. 
There's going to be angels from my home in heaven. They're going to come later and they're going to try to add, but they're demons now. Don't listen to them. What do we do with all this, folks? Because I want you to walk away with some application today, not just learning a bunch of, a bunch of fancy terms like pseudepigrapha or apocrypha. I'm really smart now. Like, ew, yucky, right? Okay. Don't you dare forget that we are in the redemptive Christianity series, okay? And, and this series is about turning back or, or walking towards a Christianity and a faith that actually saves your life and opens you up to the joy that God has set before you. And it attracts others as we learn to walk in the presence of God. That's what the series is about. But folks, many of us, can't do that if we don't first deal with the Bible and all the other false claims of genres of writings that stand against it. You won't be able to walk into the deeper waters of your own saving Philippians chapter 2, work it out faith without confidence, radical confidence in the very scriptures that we as Christians refer to as holy and divine and sacred and pleasing, pleasing to our souls. You can't do that. You can't do that without radical confidence and belief in the authority of our Bible. And so I'm hoping that today gives you some clarity that you didn't even know that you need it today. Because I really do want all of us to turn back or to walk towards a Christianity that's rooted in the God-man Jesus that saves our lives that's what I want. So, so let's land the plane addressing both groups of people that are embodied in this vision statement of our series. Namely, those who are walking, who may be walking towards Christianity for the first time. You're a wanderer, you're a seeker, you're coming from a Catholic background, from a different faith or, or no faith right? Uh, and then I want to address after that, those who, who are members of our church or, or, or you're participating in multiple state lines and, and, you, and, and you've been walking and camping out with Jesus for a couple years or 10 years, and, and I want you to return back to a genuine relationship with Jesus that saves a Christianity that saves. Okay, so first, for, for those of you from a different faith tradition, I'm talking to you right now, you're not here by accident, okay? Don't, don't believe that. You are here, in fact, because God loves you. He loves you, and he wants to awaken you, and he wants you to hear this message today about who he is and, and who you are, and he wants you to start wrestling with that. And, and he wants you to know that he loves you so much. And, and he wants you to turn away from your false view of his church and, 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 and your false view of salvation and your, your false view of, of religious books. And, and he wants your false view of himself to be redeemed. Okay, and, and now he, he wants you to follow him for who he truly is as he's presented himself in his holy scriptures, which is the Old Testament and the New Testament alone. Okay, and, and, and the Jesus that is seen in the New Testament. I want you to know 
that he is alive today and he is a, and he's well and he's sitting at the right hand of the one true God and he's holding his hand out to you today with a full pardon for everything you've ever believed and everything that you've gotten wrong and he just wants you to repent and to ask for mercy and to come back home to him but look at me you're not alone okay you're not alone there are so many christians today that have come from different other faith backgrounds and traditions all right who who are now in the light this scary journey that you might be feeling right now many have walked the road it's your turn now but but, but look at me so you're in great company you're in great company here at RCC, okay? Because we're all sinners. We're all broken. Christians are broken. So, so track with me if you're from a different faith tradition background. I, it's not like I'm saying we've got the truth and, and you're the one that got the lie. And so shame on you for getting it wrong. No, no, no. That's not RCC. That's not God. That's not genuine redemptive Christianity. No, no. Rather, it's it's we all had a lie too. It didn't have to be a Catholic lie or a Muslim lie, Karam, Scientology, Brandon. I'm saying Brandon had a lie too. And maybe it was that I could be self-sufficient or that I'm going to be my own God or I can fi find my own path. We all had a lie. Why? But but the story is God changed me. He, he he changed me. And so so maybe you have a lie today, but but God wants to change you too, okay? I don't sit here saying I got the truth and you got the lie. I say I had a lie too. And 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 now I have truth and, and you can have truth. So so I just want to encourage you to take a step forward today into this series like like don't quit don't step away okay because it's getting uncomfortable keep leaning in with us no matter what religion you're coming from because god is at work in your heart believe it okay and finally, I want to encourage all the Christians and the members and the followers of Jesus that are here today. This is so important. So, so with everything that I've said today, here's the simple application for you, okay? But, 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 but simple doesn't mean that it's not super, super important. It's infinitely important, okay? So here's a simple yet infinitely important application for you today. Are you ready? Say it out loud. Are you ready for this application, Christian? Okay. Rest. Rest, 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 rest. Rest in the name of Jesus. Rest. Rest in God. Rest in Jesus. Rest. Today's sermon means rest, Christian. Rest. Today, I want you to know that you don't have to freak out and wonder about if you're missing out or if you don't know the real God and if you have the wrong religion or how much you can trust the Bible. Rest. Rest in God's Word. Okay? I want you to, I want you to do that. And, and you don't have to freak out when you're watching the National Geographic Channel anymore or when the History Channel comes on. Hey, 8th grader, Tetricus, rest. You don't have to freak out because your history teacher tells you to read something that talks about a different faith. Read it with confidence. Get it A plus and know in your heart, in your heart, I serve the one true God. Christians aren't afraid. Rest and leave here today saying, 
Though I received a lot of new information today from Pastor Brandon, ultimately, I know that my God is sovereign and he preserves himself and his word. And folks, if you walk away with that confidence or this starts the journey towards that confidence, I've done my job today here as the pastor of this church. Now, now here's something really interesting that I want to share with you, okay, as we keep landing the plane. Everything, and I mean everything that I've shared today throughout this entire sermon, though all the facts are 100% true, Folks, they have absolutely nothing to do with why your lead pastor personally believes the Bible. Did you know that? And I mean it. In fact, I'm going to be real, real honest with you. I believed the Bible before I knew any of this stuff about the Kanam and the pseudepigraphal writings. I already believed the Bible without knowing any of it. Okay, so do you want to know why I believe and trust and submit to the Bible? Like, if I'm being totally honest and totally open and totally transparent, it's because I have the Holy Spirit in me, okay? And most importantly, God decided that I would believe the Bible. That's why I believe the Bible. When God decided to redeem and ransom and wash and cleanse me, I heard his voice, okay? His sheep's always hear the shepherd's voice, and I promise you, Pastor Brandon, before he knew any of this, already chose Jesus because Jesus came for me and he rescued me and I heard him and I knew he was king. I knew it in my heart because ultimately, folks, though all these facts that I've laid out are true, my hope and, and your hope is not in a list of facts. It's not in history. It's not in theology. It's in God, God, God. He's the point. Our hope is that God is that the God who promises to per, to preserve himself will preserve us and will illuminate our eyes into who he is as sovereign and overseer of all things. Okay, so so let me end where we started this sermon today, and I hope it means something different now that we've camped out for over two hours. So let's end with a foundational logical flow, no fluff idea about God revealing himself in scripture. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. If you believe, put your name there. If Brandon believes there's a God and if Brandon believes he can control anything and everything, are you kidding me? It, put your name. I'm, I'm not. If put your name there. If Brandon believes there's a God, and if Brandon believes that God can control anything and everything, and if Brandon believes he desires that 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 God desires to reveal Himself to me for the sake of a relationship. Would not my God control the one thing that allows the right stuff to be known about him to meet me in his own book? Oh, man. Just think about that for a moment, folks. If God really exists and he has ultimate authority, the one thing he's going to get right is the book about himself which tells us the only thing we know about him, right? Okay, 
So my hope as your pastor is that the God who is sovereign and that the God who holds the universe together and the God who wants to be known and rejoiced in and enjoyed, the God who is self-giving, the God who is self-sacrificing, my hope is that you would see that the one true only King God has revealed himself in the Bible within the Old Testament and the New Testament alone. God has sufficiently, with infallibility, not meaning what you learned when you got tripped up in your college little dorm room and you never deepened out to understand what it means. It means that God has sufficiently and God has with infallibility, without a material error, without a meaningful error that distracts anything from his kingdom prerogatives, he has revealed himself in both of those ways. Listen, we do not have to be like the pagan nations of the Old Testament, sacrificing our children it's just and, and, and building fires to make it rain again. And, and we don't have to cry out to the sky and cut ourselves and stab ourselves to figure out what God wants to say to us like the pagans and the Vikings of old. We don't have to do that. And that's because we know that God is loving and he told us he's loving. And, and he willfully and joyfully shares who he is and he brings about salvation for us. And this is his grace because he loves us. <sighs> that is why Jesus, folks, is called the word of God in John chapter 1. Folks, he is communicative. Our God is a communicative God. And I cannot wait, I cannot wait until our next sermon, part three, titled The Role of Scripture, segment B, reading in the presence of Jesus. Oh, man, because the next step after accepting that the Bible is true is deciding what that means for your life. If this Bible is the authority that we live our lives on, and if this Bible is anointed from God, the only question that comes next is, what's the Bible's authority in your life? And what does it mean? What does it mean? And I'm going to say it again. That sermon coming up, part three, will 100% be the most important sermon of this entire series. And it may be the most important sermon of your life because what you decide about that sermon and the topics that we cover regarding the authority of the Bible and the authority of the text and the authority of Jesus specifically is going to influence how you approach the rest of the series when we talk about generosity and faith and giving and sacrifice and death. But folks, it's going to also decide and inform how you live your entire life moving forward. So the next sermon is everything for us, okay? So, so as your pastor, I want you to spend these next couple weeks as we spend time here in our church in our You Grow services and for you who are in multiple state lines as you think and consider and spend time with the lord what what god means for you how much do you want to be with jesus and to walk with jesus and to deepen out with jesus and to know jesus and to have excitement about jesus and have joy about jesus because we're about to head and we're about to march into the bridge leverage point of that so let's bow our heads and let's pray oh man thank you jesus Thank you.
Father, we come before you only because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. And, and we don't know how to pray rightly. None of us do. That's what your word says. So, so we're just hoping that the Holy Spirit does it on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And, and I thank you that we can only approach you because of Jesus and that he sits at your right hand and he intercedes and, and he intercedes and, and he intercedes for us constantly. And I'm so glad that you never see us without your Jesus glasses on. Thank you. We thank you for those redemptive glasses that you created. And I'm so thankful that what becomes true of Jesus becomes true of us. We need that. So because of Jesus' righteousness, we are righteous. Because you love Jesus, you love us. Because Jesus is spotless, we are spotless. This is the story of the gospel. Thank you, God. So we love you, and we thank you, and we just confess that you are greater than us. Forgive us all for sometimes thinking that you're just really a big, great, perfect human example because you're not your holy other you're different you're god so i pray you would be with all people listening today and that you encourage those that are downcast i pray for those who just feel a million miles away from you i pray that you would draw them again near to you bring your passion back in their hearts some of them don't know what they believe help them in their unbelief oh god i i we acknowledge that that our love for you wavers at times it does our love and our focus it wavers we hate it we don't know how to stop it but your love doesn't waver your love doesn't stop and we love you for that and we declare today that you're worth it you're worth it so renew our hearts and our focus anoint our church discussions that are coming up over these next couple weeks may we all lean into you as we lean into each other it's because of your beautiful name that we pray all these things today amen grace and peace rcc